0: This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction and infrastructure projects nationwide. And we live. Welcome to this week's Safer Than Your Average. On the show this week, we have Dave Dave, if you just want to come in and introduce yourself and tell us a
1: little bit about yourself. Yeah, how's it going, mate? And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Quite feel quite privileged actually. You've been on here, but um, yeah, um, Dave White. I currently work for Morgan the Rail and, uh, and part of the infrastructure group. Um, and just you know, for coming on here, I'm I'm really I'm really chuffed to share my sort of analogies and stories, uh, Blair. So thanks for having me, mate. Excellent. Thanks
0: very much, Dave. So, I don't know if you've seen the format of the podcast. We'd like to just go right back to the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your early life, where you grew up.
1: Okay, mate. Uh, I'll start off, as you can tell probably by my accent. Um, I'm a, born in a, a place called Bannockburn, um, which is in Scotland. And without, if people don't know where that is, I can just mention a famous battle in 1314, maybe, um, to jog some memories. But, yeah, um, near Stirling, uh, in Scotland, and, you know, from a, a very early age, I would say, you know, I, I was dragged up, as a UCC to say to people. And it's quite a, a bit of an upbringing that I had, but um, not necessarily involved in school. I didn't really pay much attention. I loved my football. I mm-hmm. uh, loved to play football. Uh, I was on YTS um, with Dunfermline Athletic at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, looking back, if, if you look at the of facilities not available to kids nowadays compared to what we had. We just tipped up, done a bit of training, was told to go away again, clean changing rooms and brush your changing rooms and all that sort of stuff. And I got paid £6.75 a week, uh, Mm -hmm. which I thought was fantastic at the time, you know, you're playing football. Um, But sadly, it came to an end, uh, two things. One was a leg break. Uh, I broke Mm -hmm. my leg playing for a a team, a boys club team, uh, when I was still playing with them firmly as well. Uh, And also... It's quite difficult when you break your leg, the leg, the manager of the team turned around and says, Well, actually, mate, um, we were going to tell you next week anyway that you weren't good enough. So we're going to let you go type scenario. So oh, no. um, yeah, a bit of a blow for I was what, 15 at the time, but a blow. Um, I was one of them as well where I thought, yeah, I'll be all right, well, I'll just pick up where I left off once I've got my leg done in that. It, life life happens. Um and it was at that time probably decided to screw the nut a little bit in school. Um, and I was lucky enough to come away with Seven GCSEs I got in school it isn't too bad. Um, considering you know, I didn't study that much and just get on with it. Um, so there was an analogy then. If when I when I left school, I was sixteen. Uh, my mum had said to me at the end of the day, I was going to do A levels or I go and find a job. And at sixteen, sounds a bit strange, but that's that's how it was back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously I'm never going to go back to school, so I'm going to go and get a job. I just try to find apprenticeships and various other stuff. Uh, and I had two of my brothers were in the army at the time. Uh, yeah. One was a guy on the Highlanders, the other one was, was in the Rimi. Mm-hmm. And I can remember when they joined thinking, oh, I've never been me. Um, you know, you do look up to your brothers at the end of the day, but at the same time, uh, I was like, nah, I was too much of a lad at the time, if you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, I, I thought nothing of it. And I remember going into town one day to an old job hunt and I walked past the Army Careers office mm-hmm. and went in just had a nosy around, and I came home uh, with £16.75 in my back pocket, having sworn the Ophi Allegiance to the Queen. Um, basically then, 16 and a half, I joined a thing called the Junior Leaders uh, Regiment, which was yep. at the time you couldn't join the Man's Army, as they called it. I was only a kid. and um, So we sent me down to Bovington, and that was on the fort no, Actually, it was 27, 29 years yesterday mm-hmm. um, I went down there. Um, for a year. So it was a year's training, 16 and a half. Uh, and it was probably, looking back, one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. It was from the journey I had from the start all the way through. I'd done 20 years in the army. It was, it was the best thing I've ever done. Um, so in that time with, with junior leaders, they, they basically take this you know, wet behind the ears, five stone wet, you know, Scottish kid. Uh, and after 12 weeks of molding, shall we say, um, mm-hmm. which is more, you just do basic military skills, uh, going to jail quite a few times. I can remember always going to jail because uh, I had the worst block job in the world. So block job, I mean, is when you have inspections, some of these can clean the toilets, some of these do um, stairwells and so on and so forth. I had the job of a store cupboard. And might think that was, you know, what's that to do with anything? I remember, um, so in the store cupboard, I would make sure all the brooms were all free from dust and fluff, all the mops were all clean, and I would spend ages and ages doing it. And I would put it all away, tied it all up. And it was always that last minute thing, you know, we would see the staff walking up the road, somebody would see a bit of fluff, run it in the corridor, sweep it up, put it in the store cupboard. And then it quickly got to, I had my name getting shouted on the first inspection. What's that bit of fluff in there? You know, don't know, staff get outside, get to jail. Uh, and it got to a point after about four months of me going to jail probably every week because of his store cupboard, shall I say. Um, one day I decided, you know, the staff were walking up the path. I just ran out and started to mark time. And they turned around to me and they were like, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to jail anyway, so you might as well just, you know, no point shouting at me, I'm off. See you later. And I marched myself to jail. Uh, got pasty for about 45 minutes, came back. He actually said to me at the time, the cleanest you've ever seen the cover type thing like so um lesson learned there I suppose you, you don't try and assume stuff do it. Um, but yeah so in, in that period as well it was there's was a lot of education mm-hmm. um, and I'll, I'll mention this later on as I said there's a thing called which always resonate with me I think called values and standards that we, we teach it so you know certain things like selfish commitment and honesty and uh, they're really big in it and they, they've done it in a I wouldn't say a strange way but we've done it in a way through religion
2: mm-hmm. and I'm
1: not I wasn't a religious guy um, and and to, to an extent I you know I'm, I'm still not but at the same time the the analogy they gave you is when you're in a critical situation and for example the enemies you know not that far away from you for example and um, one one of the things you would do is look up to the sky and have a little bit of prayer and mm-hmm. i bore witness to that actually in, in my career like so um, anyway, so I I'd done the year's training. I had at the time joined uh, called the Royal Corrie Transport yep. as a driver, because um, I thought to myself at the time, you know, I'll, I'll get a trade. There's a, there's another story, sorry, shall I say, on that one, Blair. Was um, when I was joining the, the army, I wanted to be a vehicle mechanic, like like my brother was, mm-hmm. and it said to me at the time, and, and I look back on it now, thinking now I know why you did it. He was ex-RCT, he was Royal Quarry Transport himself. And he went, yeah, no problems, mate, but you can't join the RIMA yet. You'll have to wait three months. Just go and join the Royal Quarry Transport. And then in three months, go and speak to you, your staff member and tell them you want to transfer. Three months in the line, mate, marched in front of the, the old staff, said to him, right, I want to transfer. And I got told two words, mate, which I won't repeat on here. Um, <laughs> so that, the rest is history, as they say. Um, but then when I found out, when I, I sort of done a bit of Army careers advice in my, in my time, you get a little bonus if you if you tell people to join your Corps, as such. So that's probably why I did it, bless um, <laughs> them. So yeah, happy days, eh? Um, so yeah, I joined RCT, but about nine months into uh, doing my training and becoming a driver, um, there was a small presentation thing that they'd done, and they had different trades in the, the Corps at the time come along. Mm-hmm. A little stand right in the corner, you know, it, there's all these big massive vehicles that you could drive and, and there was a tiny, tiny stand in a tent right in the far corner, it caught my eye. And I, and I went across just to, you know, there was not many people there, It was quite a quite a chubby lad and I actually thought to myself at the time, you know, for somebody who's in the army, you don't, you don't exactly have a shining example of being somebody who's fit and being in the army, but I was going and have a chat with him, he, he looked a bit lonely. And he started to go on and explain to himself what he'd done. And he was a military railwoman, So mm-hmm. he actually drove trains for the army, as he, as he put it to me. Um, and I thought nothing of it. But his selling point to me, he said to me, we are based in Germany. The trade pay is the highest pay you'll ever get from any trade in the Corps. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, all we really do is drink beer and go out and get drunk all the time. I was sold, mate. I was, I was done. I mean, I was signing that, I was signing that dotted line. Um, so yeah, I, I chose one, two things really. One it interested me a little bit because it was something different. because um, There was like 150 guys being drivers. When we looked at the stats, there was only four people in that intake. It became real women, and obviously mm-hmm. the guys uh, to this day are still would stay in touch with before we joined, uh, we joined together. Um, but that leads me sort of on to the next chapter, 1993. I finished uh, training and I get posted out to Germany. Um, my my first impression that you get told, you know, here's your, your plane ticket, you've got baggage, you get two suitcases, off you go. I was met by a guy at Hanover Station. Um, so it was based in München Gladbach, uh, mm-hmm. Fantastic, fantastic place in Germany. Uh, I would highly recommend going, to be fair. Um, but got in this Sherpa and I remember driving along, not really saying too much. You were a bit scared of, you know, what was going to happen and stuff. And I remember I was a bit tired and I was just a bit dropping off. And suddenly I heard a big, it was like a, a big explosion, shall we say. Um, and that was on my first day of arrival, the, the driver who was driving me decided to show off and there was a, a speed ramp down to the barracks. Mm-hmm. And he decided to take it 120 k's an hour when I just did wake me up. Uh, he misjudged it. He flew four wheels in the air. And crashed into a tree uh, with me being in being in the minibus itself. And then um, I, I woke up, shall we say? I can remember the big commotion and I must have drifted off. Uh, and I remember waking up in a hospital called Beersburg, um, which was you know, face was a bit of a mess. And that was my introduction to, to my first ever day on the job. I was in a road traffic accident. That. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that was fantastic. Um, but Germany itself, and this is where I'll align to certain things. When, when your normal person in the army um, joins, i.e., as a driver, as an infantry, whatever, safety for me and the railway will come on to why I've molded my career all in rail, not necessarily anywhere else, um, is you know, when we started to do the training, I was again, I was only 17 and a half. Mm-hmm. Um I was allowed to drive HTV vehicles. So we had the thing called Crown Immunity and they allowed me to drive locomotives. Um, so part of your training was, I think it was a 14 week course uh, and you learned German signaling, uh, locomotive driving, shunting, servicing, um, re-railing, so if you ever fell off the tracks, you could put yep. quickly put it back on again. And um, so that was the first 14 weeks um, and safety, on that part was my first introduction to anything that was, you know, this is what you need to sign, for example, to, so for servicing, it was just go and rub your hands in this good, green paste, yeah, which I led to believe later on in life was four figure, I think it was. So part of your safety brief was get that green stuff on you, go and service that locomotive, and you would get the green stuff on you, go out there. And I remember being underneath, you know, taking out the plug for the, the main sump, for a locomotive and you would get caked in oil and literally rubbing out your eyes. I mean, in the local pit, so you're up to your knees in oil, because it was about 140 litres of oil. Um, And you cracked on and you'd done your servicing. Um, And then there was other stuff like, you know, diesel. So you you had to, you know, drain um, the diesel tank sometimes, but instead of pumping it out, you probably do nowadays, you just open the valve and let it go into the ballast. Um, and that's quite unusual because I, I always distinctly remember being in germany and if you know with your waste you had to wash your tins of beans and stuff to put it in the blue recycling um bins because they were really adamant on recycling at the time
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then i'm in a, another scenario where i'm dropping diesel you know on the into the forefoot um so contamination wise and as i said i've been involved in many many incident investigations since then with diesel spills and Know the cost of how much it it, um, it costs to clean up. Um, it, it's quite strange looking back. Um, I always wonder as well because München Gladbach Football Club took over where we were posted, and I remember always thinking to myself, I wonder when they dug that ballast up, and it, you know, have you seen all the diesel and oil and all that. So there must have been some damage done, should I say, with you know from that time. And you talking about that was probably done 30, 40 years of of doing that. So. Mm-hmm. So that was one of my, my first things that I thought of safety wise for for this evening was you know how far it's came to an extent mm-hmm. um, but but also from my early days in the army and um, we were involved quite heavily within rail shall I say with with safety um, so prime example what we're very good at in the army is briefing and mm-hmm. we are very good at saying to people do this do this but from a constructive way so. Um, if I'm in charge of something, I would, I would do the briefing instead of one person doing that briefing and communication wise is very good then. And I think that set me up a little bit with regards to how I understand how I can do safety briefs and various other stuff I engage. So I, I think that was part of it. Um, but Germany was, Germany was fantastic. I spent four years there. I was involved in um, two, two accidents in my time there don't really take great pride in. The first one was a derailment. I derailed a locomotive and um, I drove it over a derailleur. Um, I, I maybe shouldn't say this, but I didn't say this in the inquiry, but um, I was throwing berries at, at my mate. So when we drove past the tree, the tree came in the window and all these little red berries fell on the control unit. So we were there throwing, throwing berries at each other on a bit of a laugh and we forgot the derailleur was still on the rail. Next thing you know, we are bumping along. You know, and we're like, ah, we're just derailed. So um in the days of the army, when we've done accident investigations, it was pretty much you stood to attention in front of your sergeant Major after he's done an accident investigation, as he calls it, um, and then you're getting 14 days jail. So um that, that was fun. It, it, we, well, we call it jail. It was more, um, what would we call it, character building, should we say? And we would say jail. You couldn't really say it, it was jail. Um, and that was part of how things, things worked. Um, and then the second one, as I said, was another derailment. Um, and this time, it, it was more a failure of the, the equipment. Um, so again, when, when you look at things that you go back on and experience-wise, uh, and again, accident investigation, sometimes there is a human factor to it, and sometimes there's a, a mechanical factor to it. And I can distinctly remember, and it's happened to me three times in my career, in the army I've had three great failures on one in Kosovo which i will come on to in a sec and um, but that first one was a bit of a scary experience.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and a, a, again the only thing I'll take from it is but what I do nowadays is, you know, from from a point of wellbeing wise, it was quite scary for me what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time when I go out and I was, you know, the bottom lip was trembling a little bit. I can distinctly remember my corporal coming up to me. Um, Tell me to get a grip, you know, get back in the locomotive, the other one that we've brought along, and crack on. And, and that was again, um, so you just basically had a major accident where you were thinking your life flashed before your eyes, and you're getting told to get back on the spare locomotive you've got and carry on because we've got a job to do. Um, mm-hmm. so, so it's quite character building, as I said already, but also if you look at that, go back fast forward now to what we've got in place and certain things that we do that, that would never have happened probably now, and I'm sure in the military as well, they've evolved just as much as what health and safety does, just as much as what, um, you know, other industries do. Um, but yeah, so, you know, in that, in that four years, I learned uh, and I got, I got promotion in that first four years, which was good uh, to become a Lance Corporal. And, and basically, the majority of the time I spent in Germany was the job of a locomotive driver uh, for mm-hmm. a depot. We also done mainline driving uh, in Germany. So I learned how to drive mainline locomotives, um, and we we basically there was seven or eight depots across in Germany that we went to to support the troops and uh, the activities we were going there. And the good thing about um, the sorry military and the trade I was in, I could then spend three four years in one job, and I could go and do another job if I if I fancied before coming back to that trade again. Mm -hmm. And so I chose to go. We were dual traded, we were still drivers, so mm-hmm. I went and done two years in Catrick, um, right, right. and that gave me my um a bit of a different feeling, stuff, um, on how life works in the army. And again, one of the things that you know people see this as a bad thing, Blair, is when you look at CV sometimes, and people spend three four years and then they go and do something else, or you know, and I've heard it myself, I've heard comments myself of we don't spend too much, you know, too much time in a job, for example, it, my analogy is you've always got to learn, you've always got to progress sometimes, and, and sometimes that isn't, you know, staying, you know, for five, six, seven years in a job, you know, if you want to progress in your life, again, we talk about advice to people, you know, the army was really good for that, if you showed well in, if you, if you showed that you wanted to have a natural progression, then why not? I, I don't know something, you know, especially in health and safety, but, you know, it's a vast, of policy procedures and understanding of stuff um, and so in one part I would say you know, stick to what you know but at the same time don't be afraid to go and learn something else and that's the analogy that stuck with me really and, and I think that's one, it's the behaviour from the army so mm-hmm. three years, two years maybe maybe it is a bit of a lesson learned maybe I do need to, I'm not saying I don't commit to a company, what I mean by that is I, I stick internally but I go and do different things so that, yep. you know, I, think, I think it's quite a fair thing to do um, mm-hmm. we go back to, as I said, the, the two years in and um, that's when I've done my first couple of tours mm-hmm. and a couple of operational tours in Northern Ireland, which was fun. Um, and strangely enough, I'm not, as I said, I'm not religious, but I was brought up as a Protestant and please don't, you know, shoot me down for that. Um, my mum's a Catholic, my dad's a Protestant, but I went to Protestant school. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, we won't talk about football and who I support and stuff, but we, are, we do wear blue and they do play in Glasgow. Like, so. Um, one of the big things from that is is I remember being in Northern Ireland doing the, the marches, mm-hmm. uh, and it was all quite. Let's put it that way. It was it's quite intense. And um, mm-hmm. we were putting up barricades for the Orange marches. I remember getting attacked, you know, and, and petrol bombed, and various other stuff of people calling me certain other things that you know. And it was a bit it was a bit a strange one. And um, it was a good learning curve when you do operational tours. You're away for six months, and. Um, you know, and then I went to, to Bosnia and um, Bosnia was again, totally, totally different, different country um, as a driver. Um, but satisfaction wise, you're doing a peacekeeping type role and you're delivering supplies to um, the, the troops, but also doing stuff for the local communities and that. Um, it wasn't always just pure Bosnia definitely. wasn't just, you know, people think you go on tour and you're not looked after. I always distinctly remember we had an, an up-and-coming uh, News of the World reporter come up. Uh, it, was a, it was brought on. Um, and I, I was married at the time. So I remember a couple, a, couple months, a couple of years before I went to Bosnia, I got married. Um, and I went to Bosnia, and I remember this News Zealand World reporter coming to the, um, you know, the Ops cell. And I was doing a job at the time as the Ops corporal. So I was dealing with all the um, transport and logistics of how we take stuff. And I was chosen out uh, of a cast of two, and um, to go and take this reporter and his guest to uh, for a drive in the yard and show and show the guest um, who how, how it all works, how we drive the trucks and how we offload the trucks and stuff. That guest was somebody called Katie Price, um, as we as we all know who Katie Price is, uh, Jordan. But she was introduced as Katie Price, and and this, the reason I mentioned it, the story was. um. So I remember doing it and I remember there was nice photographs of Katie Price with me and, um, you know, like, you know, a bit of arm um, rimmed each other and nice smiley pics. And there was a couple of, as it was New Zealand World, there was a couple of times where she took, maybe removed a few bits of clothing um, with me next year. And I thought nothing of it. I thought, yeah, OK, you know, but it's good. Off you go. I've got a job to do. I remember two days later, it was Christmas Day and I decided to phone my wife. Say happy Christmas. It's not in the paper, is it? Oh, brilliant! It wasn't just a little tiny, tiny bit, mate. Of you know, it wasn't like page three. This is center center spread of the News of the World. Happy Christmas from Bosnia, and it had me and Katie Price in the the very middle, mate. I'm talking about a double page in the News of the World, me and a topless Katie Price, you know, all happy, all, all smiley, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so. My Christmas Day message to my wife to say Happy Christmas and I'm missing her ended up being a probably a ten minute threat uh, of divorce and all that nice stuff. Um, so I, I thought, okay, she hung up on me. I rang my mum just to say Happy Christmas. Same scenario, mate. I've got, <laughs> I've got so I was like, oh but yeah. So oh, I, I, yeah, weird. it was it was painful, mate. It was it was good for the five minutes, mate. It was showing around the, the vehicle parking stuff, but. Yeah, there was a bit of pain in the bit of explanation to do, mate, for a few days after that. <laughs> I was lucky enough I was on R for New Year, so I managed to get back and smooth it all away. Like, but yeah, that was my memory of Bosnia. It was maybe not Bosnia itself, it was more Katie price and what it led to. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so so after realistically, after after Bosnia, um I, I went back to trade, so back to this being this railway man. Um and at that time we'd moved from Germany to Marchwood where there was 17 Port Maritime, which was a military port, which is still there today. What a fantastic regiment. You know, it's the best. We stayed in Southampton for six years. Mm-hmm. Although I did, I left the family in Southampton. I went uh, to do another job up in Burbright. The the, the whole community, the whole spirit of Southampton and, and the regiment was fantastic. And um, I was a bit of a track suit soldier then as well. I love my football. So obviously, you know, I, I played a lot of football. Um, i also done um, a, a tour of Kosovo as a railwayman.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and the reason I mention that is um, I'm massively proud of that because it was the first time since the World War that any military railway had deployed anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've done that for nine months. So we, right. we basically ran uh, a line of communication from Greece, from the port all the way up to Tiretna and Pristina uh, up in Kosovo. Mm-hmm. The majority was... I would say military equipment and tools and, and vehicles. Mm-hmm. But we also done humanitarian aid. And, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of different projects that we've done. we built schools. We've done a lot for Christina. We employed people. We brought people together. So there was a bit of a thing with Albanians and, and then Serbians. And I remember in the workshop, because they had to service the locomotives, if I wanted a spanner, I would have to talk to the Albanian guy and say, can you pass me a spanner? And he would say, no, because the Serbian guy had touched it. So you had to clean it with a baby wipe and then give it the Albanian guy who would then pass you to spanner. In the end, you would just get the Spanner yourself because you know it, it was one of them. But it was um it was a fantastic tour, in nine months. Um, and again, I'll go back to safety and, and in in my career over my time in the army. I'm probably one of the very few privileged guys who started to get involved in safety from a military point of view, believe it or not, and from a railway point of view as well. So I started to develop a lot of skills and knowledge in safety. And mm. um, not to an extent nowadays, it's not, you know, the, the, what we do or what we see mm. now, but actually writing safety cases for the British army to go across and deploy. Um, in a railway environment was one, uh, but also we had to write standard operating procedures, as you would call it, you know, like a, a rule book, for example. We did also have a military railways rulebook that we always used, but you had to adapt it to your present surroundings and train people and make sure people were competent to drive. So there was a lot of route learning done. Um, But yeah, that was in that way as well. I seen a change. So from the four years in Germany to getting to the UK, we had PTS as well. So that was another thing of Mm -hmm. personal track safety. Um, We started to get clued up on personal track safety. He sent me off to be a course. Mm-hmm. knew nothing. At the time, it was like, you've got to go and do it. You're, you're quite switched on, mate. You know a lot about railways. You've got to go and be a cause, which is now a safe work leader. I remember going on the course, and there was all these guys who knew everything about the railway, and there was me sat, so, and I'll be really honest with you, I knew a little bit, but I, what stood me out from the rest of them, and I, I remember them saying that, was my briefing. So when you done your brief to the workforce, mm-hmm. I, I was as they called it, military briefing. To, you know, I'd done little diagrams, I'd done little maps and stuff and said, right, I, I got to take a knee, but we wouldn't take a knee, as we used to call it, but we couldn't, but I used to, uh, you know, and, and I passed that course, and so I started to get used to the the general rules of operating in the UK as well, because we had some depots that we operated, Luggershaw being one of them, Andover, which was by, so it was a couple of places in the UK, and um, funnily enough, well, Marchwood was a military port, but we never operated in Marchwood, because, um, we had a civilian crew there and they had a good union. So the rest is history, we couldn't ever operate there. Um, so in Kosovo, we'd done nine months. I wrote the safety case, um, we'd done the training. Uh, and, and in that context then, we started to look at risk assessments, but it wasn't to an extent of you know, getting involved in, it was more tick box if I'm being honest. It was a bit of a tick box here with a risk assessment on certain things that we have done. Again, it gave me the experience. Mm-hmm. Which is the point I'm trying to make is um, I start building that experience in a safety role um, as well as logistics and as as well as other stuff. Um, so we've done Kosovo, we had massive success there, apart from, as I said to uh, a little bit ago, um, about a derailment. We had a, a massive derailment over there um, to a point where we thought we had lost someone uh, from there, but luckily I'll come on to the story anyway. but... Long, long and shorty it is, we were operating a, a line of communication. We were driving mainline locomotives with 1,500 tonnes on the back of them. And um, mm-hmm. These locomotives were travelling, you could probably get about 80 to 100 kilometres an hour out of them, uh, mm-hmm. and it was a, an American base that we used to pop by every day. Probably at that thing, because of the curve of the track and various other stuff, you could probably get to about, you would do about 50 k's an hour. Um, and every day we would blow the horn and wave to them, and they would, you know, they big American woo has and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so they were, I would say they were pretty used to this every day going by. Yep. So it still fails me to think why well, they then decided one day, you know, to dump, I think it was about 500 tons of spoil on the level crossing. Oh, no. So you know where this is coming now, don't you? Yeah, so 500 tons of uh, spoil on the crossing, 50 k's an hour with 1,500 tons on the back. When you come around the corner, you've got about 160 meters to stop. You're not going to stop here. No. Um, so this locomotive decided to probably take about three or four of the front axles off the, off the ground and tipped up on its side. Mm-hmm. Um, that in itself was, you know, if you think about the story and you think about when when we spoke to the driver, you know, that is a true life-changing moment. His biggest thing was that his third man or his shunter was on the foot plate at the time he seen it coming, and he jumped off. Mm-hmm. Um, he, As he jumped off, uh, you know the guy was six foot, I would say he was probably about six foot two, six three, quite a stocky young lad, very fit. He was only getting out three, four months after this tour, so he had a good career to think about and stuff. He jumped out and hit a whistleboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, at the time we didn't know, but he broke his leg, I think it was, and knocked himself out. But when the train came over, there was another three or four wagons that went over on its side as well. And the driver, as he got out, he looked and seen, or he thought basically that boy was underneath um, mm-hmm. the wagons. And he said his, once all the dust had settled and the Americans came running out and stuff, he said it, you know, all the commotion he's seen in the background, this, um, I think he said that she, she must've been about five foot two carrying a six foot three, probably it was about 14 stone, you know, fit lad. And basically she carried him, dropped him in front of everybody and shot off again. Um, mm-hmm and he had broke his leg, Um, but yeah, if go back to that is, you know, my take on that, it, it should never have happened, Um it, but if you, again, you look at it, you should never take anything for granted, should you, you know, um, but at the same time, if you, if you look at the analogy I would give, you know, putting 500 tonnes of spoil on a, on a level crossing when you know there's trains running on a regular basis, well, it wasn't the best plan, shall we say, on that, uh, which, again, if you look at some of the things that we have in the industry it does tend to lead to poor planning, let's be honest. Um, but yeah, so, so there, was, there was that, and, and uh, I investigated that. That was my first real accident that I sort of done an investigation into. Uh, and I got a lot of time, you know, a lot of experience from that. It, it, I found a bit of a niche, because I liked it. I, I felt like I was the military version of Colombo um, at times. But at the same time, compared to my experience, that I had when I had my derailment, I, I used that to say, well I'd never do that because
2: mm-hmm.
1: if you're gonna punish someone straight away for doing something that we've done fair enough, I deserved the punishment with the berries type thing. But at the same time, you won't you won't get nothing from it. You will not get lessons learned as we call it nowadays, don't you? Yeah. Um, so I, I done it in that way. I, you know, and, and even with Americans and we had to we interviewed a few of the guys who'd done the planning, it wasn't uh, you know, it was a heated conversation some people, but I've done it more of a, let's sit down, let's take me through your planning process. And actually, for me, it helped me, risk um, success to an extent, it helped me also understand what goes into, you know, what do we call it? Well, we call it mitigating circumstances, don't we, nowadays, when we investigate something. Um, yeah. And it, it was a really good eye opener for me, if I'm being really honest, um, for that. And, and yeah, we, we had a lot of good lessons learned that came from it. Um, more importantly, as we say, there's um, anti-trust. Well, we actually stopped. That's what we started to do, actually. We actually stopped to train before on that level crossing before we proceeded again, which was maybe not the best idea because it took you 15, 20 minutes to get started again. But the benefit from that is we could stop and have a chat with Americans and we could swap kit. It was brilliant because Americans always had the best kit. We were given the worst kit. So we'd always get off and do exchanges. You know, and they were crazy. Some of, some of these Americans would offer you um You know, guns and stuff, and you're like, I can't, I can't, you know, you can't do that. But at the same time, the ration packs were better, so we would swap ration packs, and they were like, this ration pack, man's the best ration pack I've seen in my life. You'd be like, they are trying eating it for four days, you'll soon be constipated, mate. But you know, they had, they had some really, really good kit. And um, yeah, it was, it was fun, shall we say? But it was a good, good thing that came from that. And um, yeah, it was. For me then, that was my first step into real accident investigation, mm-hmm. safety, um, and, and I sort of progressed from there, um, especially with training. Um, so again, I was dual-traded, I was a driver, as I've already said, and I was a railwayman But I've developed a, a good passion for military skills. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it was ingrained in me from passed down, because I've had relatives, uncles, grandfathers and people in the army. Maybe it's you know, it was, it was, in you know, natural, but I was very good at military tactics and I was very good at being in the field and being a soldier at the end of the day. Um, so I decided in my career to be a military instructor or so military really? skills instructor. So I went to Perbright for a couple of years uh, and, and that's when I started to get into coaching. So I, yeah. I, I liked to, yes, I was that guy who, if you joined the army, um, I would be the good, bad cop sometimes and I could, you know, I, did I take pride in making people cry and start? No, I'm, I'm not I'm joking. I wouldn't have never done that, mate. Um I could be nasty at the same time. I could be I, I remember saying to myself, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like the guy who trained me, although the guy who trained me was fantastic and I'm still in touch with him. Um I wanted to be like someone who I could try and install all my experience and knowledge into a short space of time. So 14 weeks for a young lad come through going through what he was doing i I tried to show a bit of empathy Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: so i put myself in his position and again i'll as we as you know people want to see is analogies from health and safety to your experience in the army to an extent and part of that was you know from not wanting to be that nasty guy i wanted someone to come there and learn because i wanted to set him up uh, and i wanted to make him aware of what he will have to go through so i was thinking ahead for a year down the line thinking you know when i joined i wasn't aware of this and, and so I, I actually started to teach them different things that weren't part of the syllabus but we had time to do it yeah. uh, so i coached people and that's what i tried to do i got the best out so i treated them as individuals so i got the best out of them by treating them as individuals so the analogy i would say there is it you know especially with workers especially with guys we're, we're not all the same we're not all robots we're not all soldiers as we call them and if you treat them like individuals to me, I find it better because some people I do get a lot out of if you have conversations with. But yeah. bearing in mind there are other people where you've got to tell. You know what I mean? And, and that's the analogy I still, you know, I still practice that to, to today. Yeah. I get to know the people. And if you get to know your workforce, it, it helps you out massively. Yeah. Um, and, and as I said, it helps with it's a bit like, you know, and I'll go into in a bit with the role of a supervisor. Um, at that time, I was that supervisor, I was the black hat, as they call it, or the, the site manager um, with 14, well, it was 35 guys. Um, I was uh, the guy who would coach, mentor, nurture these guys, but impart my knowledge onto them, but at the same time, get what you needed from them as such. Uh, and I found that worked. I found that, you know, each soldier who I trained, if, you know, I, I wouldn't know the stats, but I do know for a fact that. There's a lot of soldiers i've trained i still see them and they've done really well in their careers and not that i'm going to take any credit for it the same it take the credit for it um but at the same time i gave them the tools i gave them the foundation to go and, and build from there um and that's something that i try and do with anybody a, a blue hat who joins even a guy who tells he's 20 years experience in the railway or 20 years experience in a job you know i will still try and gauge a guy and i'll try and i'll and get it out of him coaching, not me telling it out of him what he feels, what he knows. Mm Because I think that's a a fundamental characteristic of being a health and safety uh, practitioner, professional, whatever we want to call it, is we've got to have a safety conversation with people. Um, And that's not, I'm telling you, that's not like stop I'm telling you what you've done wrong because they'll never learn from it, mate, as as people will know. Um, You've got to stop them. You've got to then ask them, and say to them, what do you think? Uh, you know, why have I stopped you? What do you think you've done wrong? Is there anything you can do differently?
2: Mm-hmm. The
1: three questions that I've just said there are great, great openers or great, you know, sort of things that you can you can get information out of people. And um, Because like I say as well, a lot of people do like a whinge, but at the same time, people do like to impart knowledge onto you as well. Um, yeah. And that would be another thing. You know, don't be scared to ask yourself. Mm-hmm. We, we are... Um, you know subject matter experts on certain things, you know, we've got to don't be scared if you don't understand it. You know, it doesn't mean that you're a, a bad health and safety guy, and you know, within that place, go and ask because at the end of the day, that's the only way you'll learn. Um, so that's that's a, a bit of an analogy, mate. Um, yeah, I think with the pub Right, it, it, was, it was more for me to do with leadership and development, uh, and I started. Start to get really into the leadership and the coaching and the mentoring side of stuff, and and also, as I said, just bringing a a young lad and after 14 weeks watching him pass out on a parade square as a soldier, it's probably the best job I've done for job satisfaction. Yeah, because you turn that, and we had some pardon pardon me, I'm saying you're right, Egypt's tipping up, you know what I mean? But you could, in 14 weeks' time, these guys were fantastic lads, you know what I mean? so yeah, that, that took me on to that, um, and as I said, my career then went between a railwayman being, and, and not necessarily a driver anymore, I started to do a lot of um, teaching in the army, especially military skills, um, so I'd done other tours within, um, you know, places doing military skills within the regiment or in various other places, so, and one of the, one of the best things that I always, I tried to go for, um, Sandhurst was another one I tried to, to go there, I remember what let me down on Sanders was I mentioned I was a real If I'm being honest with you, because um, he said to me, "What trade are you?" I said, "I was proud to say it, mate. I was proud to say I'm a military railway operator." You could see him just go, "What? You know, what's that? Yeah, I'm a military railway operator. What do you know about map reading or firing a weapon or?" Mm-hmm. And, and actually, when you do peer assessments on the training, I came out top mm-hmm. because I was actually very good at what I'd done. But it, probably if you if you look at it. It wouldn't have, when I went, if i went on to further my career, trying to go into Sanders, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have done me any. And there was another story I had, you turn the clock back a bit. I remember I went to Inverness once because we, I volunteered to be a, like a a police guy who, not necessarily RMP, but you could go and pick up prisoners in the UK and Mm -hmm. take them from from jails to the guard room as such. So mostly guys that went AWOL. And I remember I went up to Inverness and the Black Watch were up there and I tipped up. Said to him, right, I'm here to get this guy. And he said, right, it'll be about 20 minutes, mate. Take a seat. Do you want to have a, a coffee? And I was sat there, and this this corporal on the on the on the, the guard room said, So what do you do? mate? you get you have a little conversation with him. The minute I said I was a railway man, he went, Sorry, mate, come again. I said, Yeah, I'm a railway. I drive trains and no, I, I used to just humour him a little bit. I said, Yeah, I drive trains for a living. He said, Okay, not a problem. And he, he went off and I heard him on the phone. Next thing you know, there was 55 people outside. And I felt like a celebrity, mate. Yeah, we wanted to see a military train driver. Yeah, and, and I had to explain to all these people what I'd done for a living because they were all like, they were all like, we couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe there was a guy in front of me dressed in uniform, you know, as a corporal, you know, and he drives trains for a living. And, then, and, and, and in a way, the, the whole trade element during my 20 years in in the, in the, the army, was that railway children or Thomas the Tank Engine pun that you'd always get or, and I'm glad I'm, I hope I'm still, you know, fat Controller was another one that I've heard before, um, which I took quite to heart if I'm being honest, but um, yeah, there was certain analogies through my career that it was always that, but at the same time, um, the the thing I would say was we were a force enabler um, Mm. and for the army, we could could take Kosovo prime example instead of using a hundred trucks, for example, we could do it by train. and um, mm-hmm. it's just a shame my knowledge of carbon and um, savings and that we could have at least it led to anyway, we got rid of the trade, hence I left. But uh, we could have gave it, I wonder if I could have sold it through a carbon efficiency saving and yeah. um, when we were trying to get rid of us, maybe. But uh, you know, if I could turn the clock back then, maybe. Um but yeah, it got me to a career and um, where I actually taught one officers as well. So you know, I, I was a one officer at the time, WO2. Sergeant Major, um, and I went to a training establishment to train staff sergeants how to be warrant officers, um, mm-hmm. and a proud achievement of mine was I, I, I developed the whole training, so I redeveloped the whole training syllabus for um, the Royal Logistic Corps. As we went to, I was RCT, went to Royal Logistic Corps, um, and I've got quite, I take quite, you know, a really good bit of pride in that because it's still in play today. So if you talk to guys who go on that training, they still do stuff I taught them or I put into that syllabus. So you all right, isn't it? that was, I left the army many, many, you know, 2012, I left the army. Um, but we still have stuff in that training course that I've done. Not all of it, but there's little bits of it. Uh, so yeah, it, but in the end, you know, I got to uh, one officer class one, which was the highest rank you could ever get. Uh, I was, uh, the official title was W01 in brackets QMSI, Courtmaster Sergeant Instructor of Rail. So mm-hmm. I ended up becoming the top railwoman, and there was a certain predecessor of mine who used to call himself a master railwoman, and I mm-hmm. thought I was a bit like a Jedi, and I, you know I thought I loved that, I loved that, but I couldn't I couldn't have that title, which is which is a shame. I just ended up being a QMSI, which I was like mm, I wanted to be this master railwoman, and um, again, put that to what we'll talk about later on. I see a lot of. when when I talk about different titles and different stuff that people have, I think that's something that we definitely need to look at, because I see safety specialists, safety professionals, practitioners, various other job titles, we're all the same. You're
0: all PC manager now as well, haven't you? (laughs) Yeah,
1: and I'll talk about the PC thing, Uh, you know, that is something that you know, I'll talk about Annabelle, but yeah, that's not that is safety, It's, it's a massive thing about safety, but you're not seen as a, a safety guy on, on that role. You're seen as, as a guy who should know everything as a CDM, you know, guru, manager, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, it, it's and we'll come on to that how I fall into that role and I've done it quite well, mm-hmm. in my opinion. But obviously, other opinions. I think it is based on the military. I'm a logistician. I, you know, I, I do logistics. I do planning. And I'll explain in a bit about the role. It's about, about everything but to me it's still safety. CDM it's and there is an argument we could have and I'm sure we you know and I'm we'll talk about it as well about what I'm going to do in the future and um, I've got a distinct I, I want to do something about CDM and especially the role of the PD and PC. Mm-hmm. I do think there is a fundamental um with, whether it's a lack of understanding still or if it's just uh I don't know what it is mate I, I need to get my my finger on it but the lack of PDPC involvement, shall I say.
2: Yep.
1: Um, but also the role of the PD. I, I don't really think people do understand what that role is. Maybe in a rail, I I can obviously from a construction point of view, I can mm-hmm. I can see it from a construction point of view, but even across construction and rail and just normal infrastructure construction, I, I don't see it. I, um I also hear a lot about safety and design. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know again, I'm, I'm passionate about that as well. And as you know, the Morgan Sindel infrastructure now, as we speak, I, I'm talking to you know, there's a few passionate guys in Morgan Sindel who want to develop that a lot more. And um, because they see it, they see it needs to be something that we need to seriously consider. And um, yeah, if I, I go back to me, I digress slightly, a bit. we'll come on to it more. And um, as I said, W1, I became overall part of the. Um, like the, the College of Logistics. Mm-hmm. So I became this guru, as you say, on rail training, and I was responsible then for the whole of the rail training for the British Army. Um, but also I'd done rail training for the MOD, uh, mm-hmm. because we had MOD depots, and I was the main safety guy for the whole of the MOD rail, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and another good thing that I'd done, I advised defence. Um, you know, and it, this is no secret, I, I used to go to Whitehall now and again, Mm-hmm. Um, and advise on certain um, military-type railway operations. Afghanistan being one of I them. Mean, it's no, you know, I'm not giving away secrets here. And um, Afghanistan, we thought about logistics and how we could get logistics quicker to the guys on the ground because there was a, you know, certain places that you would go to deliver and um, logistics to, and um, were always being compromised. Shall we say, or there was always that threat. Mm-hmm. And we looked at the Khyber Pass. Yeah. And that was my, and you know, before. Anybody went out to to an extent to Afghan who came through Pakistan. I went out with a group of individuals who, you know, if you see them in in papers, they've got little dark things over their eyes and stuff. Um, and it was a good experience, you know, going out there, wrecking in, um, the Khyber Pass, seeing the rail network out there. Um, but it was all blown to shreds the minute I seen a bridge. Because that was my analogy. Fantastic railway. Yes, there's a really good line of communication. It was about 55 bridges and tunnels exactly what you'd have to think about what was the first thing you would do to disable line of communication you take out your bridges or you take out your tunnels um yeah. so that idea was quickly quelled and i think and i shouldn't you know it, it was nothing to do with me why we got you know there was no need for a railway squadron anymore after a while um but that was i think the downfall to having logistics and rail in the army was it's a fixed guided system it's you can't exactly build round. you know you can't say all right we'll build alternative routes mm-hmm. very difficult um and i think that was part of the downfall as such of having a real you know capability shall i say um and that led me to obviously doing certain things as head of trade it was a big thing that i, I was i was sad about i, I spent nine months doing a real capability study with a really good friend of mine who was a major at the time, who was ex um, officer commanding of, of 79 Railway Squadron, which was part of um, a guy called um, Simon Watkins, who I love the guy to death. And we spent nine nine months trying to persuade uh, hierarchy, shall we say, that there was still a capability. And I remember going in front of brigadiers, two-star general and um, trying to justify Simon blessing you know, the general basically said, you know, why do we need a railway squadron? We don't need them anymore. And Simon's, you know, to come back on that was as well. You may, might as well get rid of your nuclear deterrent because you don't need that anymore. And, you know, which I thought was brilliant. I don't think it done well for his career. Um, but at the same time, you know, we worked tirelessly on that for nine months to be. And I remember the, the penny dropped when I went in one day with a vast amount of paperwork to justify I remember the guy who gave that paperwork to say, okay, thanks, Mr. White. You know, I'll, I'll look at it. I went and seen him two weeks later. And I remember looking at his entry and there was a lot of paperwork on top. Mines were was still in the bottom. And then I'd say to him, have you had a look at that, sir? He was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll discuss it um, another time. And I thought, I think the writing's on the wall here. And and yeah, it it was a horrible thing to do, but I had to go through redundancies um, for guys. So I had... Yeah, there was only 35, I think it was 35, 36 real women uh, left. Uh, And at that time, we were in Bista, where I currently still live. Mm -hmm. Um, That was in the the MOD depot, where we used to do operations and stuff. I had to tell 30 old guys that we didn't have a career anymore. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Luckily, we managed to send certain people away um, to do other trades. Unfortunately, there were guys who were old guys, older guys, um, guys with four kids, five kids to tell them you were leaving the army. I mean, that's not nice. It wasn't nice. Um, and at the same time, I was going through um, commissioning. So they would want me to be a captain, you know, become a late-entry captain. I was going through training. And I always remember, thinking to myself, you know, that's all right, mate. You look after yourself. Where you're telling everybody else, you know, you're getting made redundant. You're losing your trade. Um, you're losing your, you know, your capability. You're losing something that you've loved to do for on and off for 20 years of your life and um, and i remember thinking that and i also i had a conversation with someone who said look the whole reason for you commissioning is we can keep the knowledge within the core mm-hmm. and i thought to myself yes yeah, a, a good way of putting it to an extent in case we ever needed it and we still had the territorial army squadron that mm-hmm. no yeah. doubt i would have looked after as such uh and i remember going in front of the brigadier i'd, I'd done my, my, my sorry commissioning CADA um, and he told me I was going to be successful and I think I, out of 60 I was number 5 on the on the list of and I remember him pausing and, and saying to me for, you know, in my years I've done this you're the first person that's felt it's looked sad, I've told him he's going to be commissioned in my core and I basically told him then I said I'm not going to do it um, I think I'm going to take redundancy with, with the guys, I'm going to follow my sword as I called it um, and his words to me, again, I won't, I won't repeat what he said to me, he called me a, a certain word. Um, but one of the things that stuck with me was he said to me, I will never get a, a career outside of the army. Mm-hmm. You know it's, it's the best career I'm ever gonna get. I'm throwing away you know a career. Think of your kids, think of your family, you know you're gonna throw your life away. And I said to him, thanks very much sir, for my motivation. I mean that's exactly what I needed. Um, mm-hmm. So went back, I, as he called it, there was nine clicks. He called it the nine clicks of death, which was basically nine clicks you would put on the system to make you, you know, volunteer for, not volunteer for redundancy but choose redundancy. And um, mm-hmm. that was in 2011. Um, so you go on to a thing called resettlement. So you've got to think about um, what you need to do, various other stuff, what you need to do, and um, for transferable skills, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'll, I'll go into that. Is I think one of my biggest regrets especially being in that W1 post. I never I never managed to... I was trying at the time, but I didn't have the time to do NVQ training for the guys because I think if I, we'd done, if I had been subject to NVQs when I joined the Army, when I joined the railway squadron, I probably wouldn't have seen I'd done any better, but I would have had a, a better, firmer ground into... Because a lot of it is based on competency, is it? People will look at you and say you've not had experience based on qualification as... Come on in a bit. But I, I just wish I'd developed MVQs a lot quicker so that these guys and girls who were coming through would have had a better firmer foot and when we made them redundant, but um couldn't, so it's a bit of regret. Um but yeah, I, I went for an interview with Freightliner and I got the job. Yeah. And this was when I was doing my resettlement, and this was when I was going through redundancy. And I remember with Freightliner, I was going to be a general manager. And one of the things that they said to me was, can we see your tickets for driving online, you know, driving the Class 66s and all that. I remember saying to him, I'm going tickets. He's like, well, why are you applying for this job? I said, well, I can drive a 66. I don't know if I've been doing it for, you know, Kosovo, we drove Kennedy's, but I was doing training. You know, In part of that training, I was driving 66s up and down Andover, you know, as part of the training. I said, so I can drive them, it's not, a, not an issue. I said, but... And I, I don't know how it happened. Maybe it was just me selling myself. Um, he still gave me the job mm-hmm. when he said, "Actually, we'll train you up. We'll just get you on a local for seven eight weeks and give you tickets." But we still want you to do the job. I thought brilliant, happy days. Um, I'm going to be. I'm going to work for Freightliner. Um, I then got a phone call in September 2011 saying we've mocked up. Um, you're not on the redundancy list as we thought because you're not old enough. Uh, you've not done, you've not done your time. And, and I was like, no, when you think I'm set, I'm going to go and get a nice job. And, and bear in mind, I was, I know I only looked 21, and um, I was thirty five, I think at the time, um, quite young. So, you know, I was quite a young one officer actually, I was promoted very fast in my time. And um, I, I can just remember going, what do I need to do then? What, I've got a job, of, and it, a lot of feelings, Things went through my mind and, and I remember my commanding officer saying at the time, tough, you're just going to have to wait another year. I remember going home and I was thinking to myself, can't do this to me, They can't, I've got to do something about it. And I, I went back the next day and I said to him, look, this job was X amount of money, um, you know, it's going to, you've offered me this amount, I'm going to have to turn the job down. So, be it on you know, be it on you, I can't, I can't not sit on this and say you're going to, you know, in the next 20 years of my life, I could have been earning X amount. And I put that to him, which is a bit unfair. Um, so he said to me, okay, you still can't get out. And if you cop off even more, you, even though you're a one-off, so you can still go to jail or you can still demote you because you're still in that. So I had to bite my lip. Um, at the same time, he said to me, look, just we'll sort it for you. We'll Why don't you go and get the job? We'll let you go and get the job. Um, so I went back to them, and I lost the job. I lost, um, even though they had offered me it, I'd, I couldn't sign anything until I, you know, and all that they said to me they couldn't commit to that, they couldn't commit to me being in the army, and I, even though the army was happy with me doing it, they said, we don't want it, they want me here. as because they thought for some bizarre reason I would change my mind and go back in the army. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I'm a big believer in fate, you know, what happens, what happens, so that, that path wasn't meant to be, I wasn't yeah. going to be a general manager, so in that time of doing more resettlement, they gave me more resettlement, and I remember then, you know, I'd already done my knee-bosh general, and I was managing safely when I was doing my sort of W1 military career type thing training. And mm-hmm. um, so I decided, why don't I sit there and I'll do my knee Bosch construction? Uh, and I've done that one. I thought, I enjoyed that. Really, you know, it might sound bizarre. Um, we've all done knee-bosh exams and stuff. You know, you mm-hmm. go away from there with, with a numb hand because you've you've written for 10 men. Um, but at the same time, I found it easy because my, my knowledge that I had already and um, I found it really easy to sit with the NEBOSH stuff. So I've done the construction, environmental management, oil and gas. I've done everything, every single one. I actually started to collect certificates. If I'm being honest. I became a, I used to in the army, I used to be a badge collector. Now I'm starting to collect NEBOSH certificates. Um, and to be fair to the army, they give you money, they give you support, transition. Uh, so it's fantastic. And um, I think, you do see a lot of people coming out of the army uh, with qualifications in health and safety. And I've advised a lot of people actually um, who leave the army who talk to me because they obviously see what I do for a career. Yeah, um, yeah. And they say to me, how can I be as successful to an extent as what you, you are? Um, and and I'll, I'll also give them a bit of caution because as I've just explained it over the last you know, half an hour or so, again, my, I'm a railway man. I've gained a lot of knowledge in health and safety in a railway environment. Um, So it's not as easy as just getting five or six certificates and going out there and saying, I'm a health and safety manager. Um, you've got to have that experience as well. So I I used to say to them, best thing you can do is your NEBOSH general, NEBOSH construction, if you're going into a a construction environment. Um, So yes, that's your foundation, shall we say, that proves that you've got the capacity to learn, you've got the capacity to study, Look at literature, look at policy, procedure, and then push it forward to, you know, advising as such or, or whatever. But also see, I also say to them, don't don't go in there thinking that you're a high senior health and safety manager. Um, mm-hmm. Although I, I do know some of them that have, you know, made that transition and went into senior appointment straight away. Um, fair play to them, you know I mean? and I, I would say, each to your own i have done very similar, from being honest. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't go into a health and safety. Um, in a way, I didn't. I've never been a health and safety advisor. I've never been an administrator in health and safety. Um, mm. I, I did go into a, a manager's role straight away, but because, as I said, transferable skills. And um, but I do have. I've employed a lot of people since then, uh, and it's advice that I would give. I love. I love career progression. It's part of my army thing, uh, and I do love. I've got a, um, a graduate who's worked with me for the last year and a half, a girl yeah. called Ellie Jackson. She is, you know, she's a ray of sunshine. She is fantastic and really, really passionate, committed to wanting a career in health and safety. And, and the good thing I like about Morgan Sindel is that they don't, you know, they're one of these companies who don't necessarily hold you to one position, uh, but also with a graduate scheme that they do, but, and, and also with just in general career progression we are really good at at nurturing talent shall we say and pushing them at the same time with managing expectations in it you know you don't so uh, and I talk about Ellie and advice I give and it's again for for this forum and especially where a graduate I I always say to Ellie and and I have many many chats with her and you've got to you know you've got to learn first you've got to you know just take a step back and and learn but also find your niche Um, So Ellie's very good at well-being. She loves, uh, she's a mental health first aider. She loves uh, mental health first aid. She's very good at uh, fatigue management. She's very good at um, hand-down vibration. And so Mm -hmm. I I, I tend to sit here and nurture that and become, and study that, look at that first, you know, and become my advisor on hand-down vibration and become my advisor on fatigue management. And once she's got that, after a few months, I'll give her something else to do and I'll say well I don't tell her you sit down with her don't you and you say yeah what, what, do you, what are you passionate about next and then you say what don't you like well and she'll be the first to tell me I don't like doing that I don't like standing in front of people I don't like giving briefs and to be fair I've said okay next week you're giving a brief in front of the workforce I mean so there's a bit of that as well isn't it? you've yep. got to you've got to put it yeah. in the comfort zone a little bit, a bit
2: the
0: comfort zone. yeah that's it
1: definitely yeah and um, but the good thing I've said to Ellie, and, and and she's, and sadly she's going to leave us in a couple of weeks for a promotion. But mm-hmm. I, I take great pride in that because she's went from a graduate. She finishes a graduate scheme. I think it's next week. We could have kept her on um, as a as we call it a health and safety administrator. She she's very good at the stats. She's very good at putting the spreadsheets together. Although again, um, Morgan central in Infrastructure, we've got a thing called Power BI that we use for all well, mm-hmm. your nice stats. Fantastic tool to use. Yeah, it's great. Built, yeah, uh, I call him a technical ninja, a guy called Kashima, who, you know, he, he should be, I don't know, building space shuttles for Elon Musk or something like that, you know, not necessarily doing what he does for us. Um, but he's put, and it's a really good tool um, and it saves us a lot of time and effort. Go back to the days where you sat there on doing databases and spreadsheets. okay mm-hmm. a button nowadays and I can tell exactly what my AFR is and I can tell you exactly you know, what the trends are and Mm -hmm. this technology I'm I'm seeing ever evolving, starting to look at trends. Um, And one of the things I've always said is I would love to be a proactive health and safety, not a reactive health and safety guy, because I think we're always reactive. And I would love to get in there, basically hindsight, looking at what can we do in prevention. And we do, we do a lot of good stuff, and I'm not saying we don't, I'd rather be proactive than reactive. And and that's a a thing I would love to do. Um, And I think with the technology we're seeing, for an example I can give, I can tell you trends that we have on the project and it seem to be on a Tuesday. Because I'm not saying it's, you know, we're not relying on technology, but we can get good evidence from technology and stats um, that tell us on a Tuesday that we have the most accidents. And you think to yourself, okay, so why is that? And you do a bit of deep dive into it. And actually, on the railways, you know, you work a lot of weekends, and people tend not to have, not to come in on a Monday. you have a bit of time off. So on a Tuesday, everybody comes back fresh, you know, from a, a nice break. But sometimes they're not switched on straight away, and yeah. the thing about the previous weekend. So that's my take on it. Is actually that's probably why. So we've had to do a lot of Saturday shift briefing and, and a lot of emphasis on when you come on a Tuesday. In fact, every day brief, brief you guys. You know, don't take it as if that hazard is, is there. You know, it's gone. You know, point of risk assessment, is as we've brought in as well. You've got to do a risk assessment. Don't rely on your task brief. Don't rely on your, you know, your method statement. Go and do an assessment before you brief your guys and then give a good brief as if it's mm-hmm. the first job you've ever done. Um, and we're doing that and I'm seeing a lot of good benefit from that. And um, yeah, again, come off a little bit, it takes me back, you know, it takes me to now, as I said, um, what, what we've mentioned about, myself in, in general of coming out of the Army Freightliner, you know, and just the whole thing of once I, I had this sort of six months of being in a bit of doing training, doing qualifications, then I had an interview from Balfour Beatty, So I seen seen a job interview. And, and what again, if there's any any person who watches this who's in the army who's looking at a bit of um, a bit of advice, one of the things you do, and I think we all naturally do it, is we look at, we do, we look at what we're on currently earning. If I'm being honest, you know, you say, for example, I'm on X amount, and you just look at a job that is X amount of money in the same, because you're quite used to it, and you think to yourself, and, and I think, a lot of mistake, and I made the mistake, I sold myself short.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: No, no disrespect to the job i have done, started off as a labour manager, working for Balfour Beatty, um, and that was end of 2012 ish. Um, and the reason that I took the job, and this was a strange thing as well, that when I went and seen the CEO and I said, Look, I'm going to go down and I'm going to take this job, can I still, can I take the job? Can I agree? Can I sign on the dotted line? She went, Yeah, go for it. You know, we can't stop you. You will be getting made redundant anytime soon anyway, so just go for it. So, I signed all the paperwork, took this job on, and it was funny, the job was advertised in London. I went on the interview and um, I was thinking to myself, oh yeah I can work in London, I can handle that. I was living in Bista, i bought a house in Vista. Um and it, the interview, I remember going in like a good soldier 30 minutes before, you know because you had to wreck where you were going, you had to go in there, you had to sort of sneak in and leopard crawl down the corridor just to have a look at what was going on and get a gist for how it was all working. I didn't leopard crawl by the way mate, I'm, I'm only joking that, but you go in and you do, you scope the area don't you, uh, and he me all suited and booted. I'm glad I didn't march in, but I was close to it. Um, sat there for half an hour beforehand, and I remember watching a guy when I was scoping it all out, going in. he went into this interview room, um, and I was there half an hour beforehand, probably about an hour, 45 minutes. I'm thinking, this is, you know, an hour and a bit. And I was, I was like, this isn't professional. You know, I'm looking at my watch going, it's, you know, five minutes before, good soldier. You know what I mean? You should be ready. I should be interviewed by now and this guy comes out you know and you sort of nod and you, you nod back and I went in after five minutes it was like no further questions I've no got any further questions thanks for coming you know when you think to yourself oh and I'd only basically I'd started off and tell us about yourself very much what you said there and I, I didn't obviously go back to when I was a young kid and all that but I, I told him about my military career for well, I said it was five minutes, but it wasn't. It was probably more like thirty minutes. But I told about my career, and I remember looking at him, and he just said to me, "Wow, didn't, didn't know that." And then they asked me a couple of things. Would you work weekends? And I went, "Well, if you want to send me on six-month tours across Afghanistan, I'm quite happy to do that. So, I'm oh, quite happy to work a weekend. And um, would you would you consider, you know, working away? Yeah, not a problem." So as I was walking out, I remember phoning phoning my wife and, I, and she said, How did you get on? I said, I've I've flunked this. Uh, you know, the guy was in there for an hour and a half before me. I said, I've only spent half, a, you know, I said five minutes. I said, I've only spent five minutes I, nah, I've got no chance. So as I was just about to get in my car, my phone rang. And the guy was like, Have you left yet? And I said, No. I said, can you come back in for two minutes? Went back in and he offered me the job on the spot. You know, and I was like, Wow. Um so yeah, it was a labour manager for um, Alphabeti Rail uh, in Anglia, and this is the point I was thinking, Anglia, that's a strange one in London. So got got you know you get the, the laptop and, and the phone and all that sort of stuff, and you told to report to London, and i have done a bit of induction, a bit of training, for a couple of days, and I remember going in, seeing the guy who hired me. He said, "That's you all set now, mate? You pick your car up, and um, you report to Ipswich uh, on Monday." I was like. Where did Ipswich come from? He's like, well, that was a job, mate, real, you know, labour manager Anglia. You think it's going to be in London? I was like, oh, the post of a job check in London. He went, yeah, but I'm based in London, mate, you're not Pick up in Ipswich. I was like, okay. Then <laughs> I had the thing of, I just took a job and I've just accepted it and I'm, I'm on my way now to, you know, Saturday Monday, I had to drive to Anglia to Ipswich uh, from Vista which I don't know if anybody's done that route. Uh, It was basically down the M40, M25, and onto the horrible, horrible thing called the A12, Mm -hmm. uh, up to Colchester, up to Ipswich. I had to leave, done a bit of a a combat assessment, shall we say, and I had to leave at five o'clock in the morning um, to beat the traffic, especially on the M25, and I didn't leave realistically until about 5, 6 o'clock at night to then stop the traffic. All in all, I was doing... 17, 18 hours, and um, looking at it now, again, if you look at fatigue policy, if you look at, um, you know, door-to-door policy, we have 14-hour door-to-door on the railway, um, fatigue assessment, fatigue risk assessment, shall we say, I would have been off the of scale, and um, every time, again, a bit of lesson learned, but, you know, coming from a career in the Army, you do as you're told, and you just get on with it, and um, but at the same time, Belford B realised that, they recognised that after a, a certain couple of months, and and they, they offered me, you know, stay in a hotel, you know, every now and again. Um, at the same time it, it was difficult because my partner she was she was becoming a midwife, so she was going through training. So anyway, it was it, it was one end where was a little bit of boo-boo. Um, but at the same time, I, and the reason I say I joined as a labour manager, fantastic job though. the reason I say it was a fantastic job was I'm trying to find my feet because I've just spent 20 years in the military. I expected when I asked a guy to pick a shovel up, he would pick that shovel up and he would shovel up and he would dig that hole to the best of his ability in record time because I've told him to do it. Um, and my first day on site, when I told the guy to pick a shovel up and dig a hole, he told me to F off because he's not paid to dig a hole, he's a crane controller, and <laughs> threw the shovel back at me. So that was my first realisation that actually it's a different... Set up, and and I thought to myself at the time, can I make him, you know, put ballast down his trousers and tell me to run up and down, you know, for <laughs> seven hundred metres uh, until he fell over? Probably couldn't do that, so I had to accept that. So it was a bit of a, a bit of a learning curve on day one, um, and then the second day we had a, a renewal, and I was labour manager. I didn't have any training. It was pretty much one of the renewals. Manager sat me next to me and showed me for a day how the whole. Labour system operates and how you ordered staff. And I remember actually I got I got you know I got my head round it quite quickly. And then we had a big renewal. Um I can't remember what job it was, it could have been Tottenham Hill. Um, so I joined on a Monday in the, the, the big core weekend, 52 hour block. Um, mm-hmm. thousand, I think it was about a thousand odd um yards of plain line um, renewal. I didn't know much. I thought, yeah, happy days. Ordered as I thought, I had ordered all the manpower. So we had core gangs, which were rostered. I had a rostering clerk who would do all the rostering, so I didn't have to worry about that. But I had to worry about the the plant and the welfare and various other stuff and the labor. And you go into the system and you press a button and you speak to the labor suppliers that you use to say, I need X amount of men. And they say, yeah, not a problem, Dave, we'll supply it. And I press the button. My mistake was when it goes out to inquiry, you've got to then press another button to send it to order. And I didn't, because nobody told me. So I'd left all these, you know, you're talking about maybe 500 guys, um, mm-hmm. all in different jobs all around Anglia, um, you know, to basically say, you know, I'm on inquiry. And, and these guys, uh, i look back on it. Did they use it as to my to their advantage? And I'll come up that why in a second, or did they just think we, we don't need them? I don't know. But I remember going home on a Friday, I was quite chuffed that I'd, you know, Came into his role and I'd met a couple of guys and I think to myself, yeah, I can I can work here. It's a decent, a decent little gig this. And they said, oh, you're on call this weekend. I said, okay, I'll do that. Not a problem. Friday night, I was thinking to myself, I'm on call, so I'll get myself to bed early just in case. I don't know what this on call means, but I'm sure it's nothing. And, and I remember watching a, a film at 10 o'clock at night. I thought, yeah, I'll go to bed now. Into bed, half past 10, phone rings. I'm thinking oh, I wonder who this is and it was one of the site managers and I had five minutes of verbal abuse where's my staff where's this where's that we've got nothing on site I've got four guys I'm cutting out in a minute blah 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 and I was like it's all ordered mate not a problem you know it's it's done he says right said, you know have a look phone phone the supplier so I phoned this this, this guy who really good mates we now phoned him and said where's your guys you know, I need a cost plus 10 on this, you know, kicking off at 23.59. You haven't ordered any staff, mate. I was like, what? I said, you haven't ordered any staff. Ah, oh, and I, I was ranting. I was like, oh, i tell you, mate, I've got the evidence here. He went, has it got an E next to it or has it got an O? I was like, yeah, it's got an E. Why? You've not ordered them. I haven't ordered them. So we went my first job, setting the standard as a labour manager. And that weekend, I didn't order any staff. Um major rail renewal, they'd already cut the track out. So they'd already made that, that sort of disc cutter or that burner had came out. I managed to order the burners, which was good. And that wasn't too bad, but um, burners came out, I burned the track, we'd started to panel out because the site manager being the site manager thought, I haven't got staff, but I can cope with the five guys that I've got on site with the machines. And I was like, oh my God. So this guy I spoke to said, look, I can get you blokes you know, but you need to give me a bit of time. And I spent probably that whole weekend planning the resource and getting resource to site. And, and I was going, and, and I think the reason I said did they play it to their advantage because the conversations that I was having was, Dave, if you want these guys on site, you can't just do a, one single shift, mate. You're going to have to pay them two shifts to come. That type scenario. And I was like, uh, okay, just do it. Just send them. I've got to get this job done. And I remember it was a chaos, I had maybe three hours kip. And, and when you're on call, uh, when you were doing the labor manager role, we were also, um, I was in Anglia, we had Tunbridge and we had Eastleigh. And um, I wasn't really responsible for the labor at Tunbridge and Eastleigh, but you were on call. So any issues that you had with labor. Tunbridge had a, a massive meltdown that weekend as well. Uh, and their labor manager had forgot to order staff. And Eastleigh uh, went through very similar situation, not necessarily with the ordering of the staff, but just staff didn't show up. And um, mm-hmm. I spent my first on call weekend, probably I would have got about three hours kept. Jeez, oh. shall i say, um, I didn't bat an eyelid. Yeah, I thought I hadn't passed the job. I remember driving in Monday um, and my phone was gone, but I was thinking to well, I can't answer the phone because I'm driving, you know. And um, I'm driving along. I went to Colchester first because I wanted to say thanks to the labour manager who was helping me out with the, the manpower. Walked into the office, they were like, You need to ring work, mate. I said, Why? What's up? He said, we think you've canned it? I said, No, no, I'm, I'm all right. I'll go in a minute. I just need to say thanks. But, so I rang, they're like, where, where are you? Where are you? Really concerned. I said, I'm coming in a minute. I'll be, I'll be, and I'll just, you know, nipping in to say my fact, give my thanks. Oh, that's all right, then. That's all right. We thought you'd binned you'd it after the weekend. So I came into the office. And it, and it all became player. My the guy who I took over from lasted two months, he was ex-military, ex-RAF. No, I'm not going to say anything about RAF and Army. <laughs> we, won't, we, won't, we won't go
2: there. do
0: we'll
1: that. I'll give it. I'm not going to go there. Um, but I thought maybe he was used to maybe, he maybe wanted a five-star hotel mate maybe in Anglia, maybe. I don't know. But, um, but Anyway.
0: You um, set up all of the ex-RAF and seven RAF people now.
1: <laughs> I, I will, I'm not going to take any away from it. But yeah, I think he... He had a very similar experience, shall we say, and he um, he decided. Well, he left his phone and computer on the desk on on the weekend, whereas mm-hmm. you know I, I came in on the Monday, didn't bat an eyelid, and I think everybody gave me a bit of respect and straight away to say, well, this guy hasn't jumped ship and, and shot off. Um, but I was I was talking about the stress and lack of sleep, and and I also found out the guy, so your F guy. Who had spent two weeks in the job, packed it in. The guy who he took over from um, had a heart attack. Uh, he was working on a job for two years. He stated that he had a heart attack because of the stress of the job. So I'm starting to think yeah. to myself now: Wow, this is something that obviously we're not going to tell you when in the interview. You but by the way, Dave. You know, guy quit two weeks ago because of the job and all that sort of stuff. But it gets you thinking then of how far we've came as well, though, with with well-being. Um, stress yeah. management, as I said, and, and fatigue. Uh, and again, I'll go to the um, present company who I'm with, you know, with Morgan Sindel. Um, especially, you know, I work for the real department with Morgan's and we've got um, someone who I hold in very high regard with regards to how she um, develops her wellbeing and, and she's, she's been a bit a conduit to mental health. Um, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. The stuff that she's done that I've seen built, bore witnessing in the last two years, I think she's, you know, she's fantastic on, on well-being and mental health. And, and when you look at it, if we had that type of individual, uh, you know, and that type of thought process back in 2012, 2013, uh, and I've seen it quite a lot, if I'm being really honest with you, mate, in that environment, there was a lot of guys going off with stress, and um, there was a lot of pressure. Being in yeah. a railway, you work in possession time, is your biggest, your biggest foe, um, and what I started to realise, um, especially with myself, I, I started to get a lot more involved in the health and safety aspect of dealing with these guys, um, and the welfare and the well-being of the guys, and, and leadership and developing these individuals, but, but mainly I, I started to start doing site reports and safety tours, um, which actually, when you see the job description, it did say, carry out a safety tour, mm-hmm. but I made sure I'd done a safety tour at least once a week uh, mm-hmm. for me. Wasn't part it was, I think it said once a month. I didn't. I, I actually I actually done probably about two or three a week. And I not only on days, not only on nights, not only on weekends, I started to do it in the office because I thought, well, you know, and no due respect to the guy who was doing that role at the time. He was a fantastic bloke and I learned a lot from him. Um, you know, but I felt that he needed a bit of a hand because every time I seen him he was always cutting about the place dealing with accidents or incidents and that sort of stuff and I I didn't really understand his role at the time Mm -hmm. but I always thought he needed a bit of a hand and he recognised that and he said to me, are you a health and safety guy mate? I said well you you could say I am but I'm doing a labour manager's role so I I didn't want to step on his toes at the same time I had that bit of respect. Um, but I ended up helping him a lot doing safety tours, on-site tours. Um, and we worked very well together. And I developed a, a lot of strategies and that around that. And it it got me it got me into that thought process of actually labour manager or health and safety. I started to think about that. Um, at the same time, I was only a labour manager for three, three months. I got a promotion. Uh, I became, what do I call it a promotion? I became a logistics manager. And... Mm-hmm. Um, but also a labour manager. Um, because the guy who was in control of the depot, and control of the in Anglia, he said to me, one day he just sat me down. And remember what I said to you about knowing you people? He was very good at that. You come in, tell me about, about yourself. I told him the stories about rail and, and the army. He said, you're wasted in that role, mate. You're wasted in being a labour manager role. And he seen that potential. He actually mentioned a thing called the PC manager. And I was thinking to myself at the time, PC, it must be politically correct. Some yeah, and, I, and I thought to myself, he doesn't know me then, really, if I'm being honest. But um, I thought to myself, OK, I, I'll, I'll take what you're saying. But yeah, I'm, you know, I'm happy. When, but he said, I am going to put you in logistics as well. So not only can you do labour, um, I also want you to do the logistics. I also want you to do plant. I also want you to do welding. And actually, while you're at it, can you do the, the depot thing as well? Uh, and the health and safety guys leaving us soon, would you mind just helping out? Because you've been doing that anyway. Um, and I said yes. I said yeah, no a problem. A bit of lesson learned. I, there was no discussions on um, wage rises or anything. Like that. I just done it because again, military told do it, crack on. You know, there's no you doing it for the benefit of because your boss is telling you I need I need a hand or I need this. Um, so yeah, I, I ended up doing a range of different things: logistics, um, health and safety, um, and the labour. Uh, so. Pretty much got involved in, in my understanding from going from not. I knew a lot about renewals, if I'm being honest with you, Blake, You know, because in the army, I built tracks in Kosovo. We used to do training down in um, all, the, all the sort of the only training we could get because we couldn't go on network rail infrastructure and um, was all the preserved railways. Yeah, so we yeah. used to do a lot of renewals down there. And I can drive a steam locomotive because that was part of your thing is if you come along and, and renew my track for me, we'll allow you training to drive a steam local um, and all the bufties, I'll be honest with you, and, you, know we had a lot of train spotters in that squadron, um, mm-hmm. personally I wasn't a train spotter, um, I, I liked it, I got a bit of a buzz from it, but I was a bit like, yeah it's another, You know, I can drive a steam locomotive, <laughs> yeah great, but actually part of that understanding was, when I got promoted later on in life, there was always the understanding of um, going to Africa, if there was any humanitarian aid, any, any, mm-hmm. if you look at Rwanda and stuff and certain atrocities, you know, things that have happened in the past, there was an exercise to get us trained up to drive steam locomotives just in case of Africa or I think Russia possibly was mentioned as well. Yeah. Um, the fact that uh, they still had steam locomotives in operation. So military railmen get itself across here, jump on the infrastructure and start driving your steam locomotives. So that was part of it. Um. So yeah, I, I, I always had a good understanding of um, how it all works. But as, a, as I said, you, you've got to learn the job, aren't you? You, you know, you've got to ask people, you've got to hang around with the supervisors, trackmen. Um I, I was even hanging out with site access and I always used to ask and always used to, I was really interested in what makes everything all come together. I mean, what makes it all work? Um, especially with, the, I start to see things um, possibly, you know, I'll call it a fresh eyes approach. You know, a guy coming into an establishment. Um, with my experience, I would then look at fatigue management, it would be one of the big things. I was doing roston and I was thinking to myself, we're just we're paying these guys and these guys are doing 79 hours a week. I then spoke to the guys who were doing the roston saying, is there something I can put in place that would stop them at a certain amount of time? Because legally we can only work a certain amount of time. Great idea. So we then produced a fatigue management system into the roster. So if you mm-hmm. try to roster and drag a guy in to do a shift, it wouldn't allow you if he's done his hours. And also mm-hmm. it wouldn't allow you if he's done his he hadn't done his 12-hour rest in between. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there little things like that I started to bring in. Um mm-hmm. there was, you know, from a, a again safety. I, I became this guy who realistically ran a lot of stuff. Um, and and round about I would say 2000. And, I think it was about 2014. I actually went for an interview with Alphabet um, in an enhancements role as a safety manager, and mm-hmm. I got interviewed internally. It was a bit of well, you shouldn't be doing it, but we'll we'll give you an interview. And I don't know, uh, well, they said to me at the time, I put it way, I didn't get the job. Mm-hmm. He said I wasn't qualified enough, and, mm-hmm. and I, fe- I remember thinking to myself, wow, that's a bit of kicking the, the backside. I also think it was due. To, I remember the head of safety was doing an interview, and one of his opening questions was, and I think it didn't help me mate, and I think that's probably why I didn't get the job. He said to me, "You're a health and safety guy on site. I'm working on site, and I've not got my I've not got my hat on. I forgot it. I've not got my glasses, and I've not got my gloves. What are you going to do about it?" And I said, "Can you just tell me what your job role is again?" He said, "I'm head of safety for." Alphabet renewals. I said, okay, so if you ever walked onto a, a work site without your hat and your glasses and your gloves, I'd be embarrassed if I was you. you know what I mean, I said, you're head of safety. I would be seriously considering not working for you, if I'm being honest. And if that's the question you're asking me, I don't know if I want to work for you in the first place. However, I'll understand that you're my boss and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't know, you know, all that stuff. And the guy who was next to him, I think he was the uh, renewed enhancements PM, he spat his tea out. And he actually said that's one of the best answers I've ever heard on these interviews. And I thought, oh, I'm starting to get a bit confident. You know, I was like, oh, I'm, you know, getting a good impression here. The next thing he said to me was his next question. And I remember him looking at his notes and he turned his book over and he went, Okay, can you tell me section five, paragraph seventeen of the Health and Safety at Work Act? What what does it what is it? And I was like, excuse me, you know, and he said, you know, tell me section five, chapter 17, what is it? What's your take on that? And I was like, I don't know. So if I'm being really honest with you, I I haven't got a clue. And he said, well, I'll tell you what it is. He said, it's this. But as he was telling me, he wasn't, I, he was like reading from his book. And I was like, and I, I, I thought I'm in the wrong, I'm in the wrong interview here. And I said that to him and maybe as I said, it's, I said I wasn't qualified enough. I think it was the defining moment was I said you're after the wrong guy. If if I can quote chapter and verse from the Health and Safety at Work Act, um, then you know I you know if that's who you're after, you're after the wrong guy. And I said personally, I think you know health and safety manager on site isn't about quoting paragraph and verse from the health and safety at work act, it's about mentoring people, it's about coaching people, raising awareness, it's about engaging, it's about and I went, you know, I had a bit of a, a, bit of a rant of what my take on being a health and safety practitioner is, and um, yeah, I think that was a defining moment where I thought I had a bit of confidence. Now it wasn't going that well, um, and yeah, they responded back saying I wasn't qualified enough, shall I say? Um, but in a way, I took that. I wouldn't say I took it to heart, but I took it as a lesson learned. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I say that, I did have all my E-Bosh as I say, to you, certificates coming out my eyeballs. Um, but I I was nothing to do with IOSH at the time. Um, I hadn't looked at IEMA. I hadn't looked at anything like that. Um, and that's one of the things he quoted. You haven't got you know IOSH. You haven't got IEMA. Um, and they spoke about this e diploma. And I thought to myself, okay, that's a fair one. So as you would do, you look at it and you would think, well, that's my career, program. I want to be a health and safety guy. I want to work in the railway as a, as a health and safety guy. So I had to do it to an extent. Um, and what I've learned with IOSH is fantastic. Um, you know, you, when you're doing CPD, I'm, I'm now doing IPD. I, I've sat on it and you've probably seen my message. I've got a good, well, say a good mentor. She'll, he will kick my backside if I don't get it done uh, by Easter. Um, but I think it's really important. And, and the reason I say it's really important is, one, when I talk about interviews that we've had, and people will look at that, people will, and, and clients nowadays, it's really important now, especially when we do bids and especially when we look at um, work winning. Uh, the clients are more and more asking for chartered membership of IOSH for your safety professional. Um, IEMA and various other, comp- they call it competence, shall we say. Um, so to me, it is really important now. And, and I will admit, I probably six, seven years ago, I thought it means nothing to me. It's just another tick in the box. But it's not just about that. It is about reflection and personal development. And I've always found... Yes. Um, especially, and I love it as well, um, networking. So, you know, Metropolitan Branch in London, I've, I've put on a couple of things. Branches,
0: yeah. Isn't it? yeah, I've visited them a few yeah. times when I've been working in
1: London. I've, I've met people that work for ITV and Netflix, uh, mm-hmm. and it makes you want to go and join Netflix, the stories it they tell you, because you can go and travel the world and do all these stunts and stuff in ITV. And it's amazing that, you know, you've, you're in this little bubble, it's a good awareness of what does go on generally within health and safety and i think that's the best thing about ios and you make branch meetings and stuff
2: mm-hmm.
1: and i also took a tour i took them to king's cross where you know and we had an ios event and it gave him uh, you know a, a big eye opener um, and it's something that i will do in future to covid we'll come on to covid in a bit what's stopping us doing online like you're doing now. i can take you on a team to put my ipad or a, a GoPro one, and you're going to do a live safety tour of Kings Cross. You know, I do it now with Network Rail. I, I go every week because I don't want people coming to sight. I put, uh, you know, one of the guys, he had a golf trolley and he put an iPad, fixed an iPad to the golf trolley and carried it around with him. Not meant to an extent. I thought that was a bit, you know, it was a good idea, a good bit of innovation, but I'm more GoPro or some live link, you know, to wear on the helmet or just carry an iPad around. And mm-hmm. I've seen quite good success from that, you know, and um, I'll come on to you as well, some of the things I've brought in in PC and um, with using CCTV to an advantage to an extent. And um, yeah, so, you know, promotion through, um, through Balfour Beatty, I became his logistics manager. And as I said, in the back of his mind, we were talking about PC. And I also remember I went for a job interview with Balfours, didn't get it, um, went back to doing labour manager, but the commute was proper, proper killing me. Um, there was also a thing called RT24, and we, we lost out. RT24 and Colas came in um, to take over in Angle, and it probably gave me the decision, although to be fair, Colas, they were more than willing to, to help me in, with the commute and various other stuff. I just found it as a bit of an opportunity to, to branch away and actually to, to develop my career as a Health and safety professional practitioner, whatever you want to call it. Um, and just for the record, yeah, I call myself a health and safety practitioner. You know, that's yeah. that's what I say. Just to, and we'll come on to that in a, in a bit as well. But um, so yeah, I, I I went that side um and ever since I've not looked back really. Um apart from as we will mention it, I took a, a short break to try and get into electrification overhead line. and um, mm-hmm. and then my old boss rang me up and said, Remember that conversation we had when you left Balfour's and you didn't want to join Colas and you didn't want to troop you over. Do you want to come back and work for Balfour's as a PC manager? And I, honestly, I still, till the day, I, I tipped up to have the, the sort of chat and the interview. Um, I still thought it was to do with political correctness or some HR type thing. And I, I didn't really do much research into it. I thought, and then when I got there, it wasn't really an interview. It was, you're the guy for the job. We want you to come and work for us. And and I was like, okay, yeah, I'm I'm happy, let's discuss. I was thinking at the time, PC, PC, what's this PC? And then they mentioned it, with principal contractor was like, hmm, I know what that is, principal contractor manager. So it was one aim that you take the leap of faith. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Quite a unique role in the rail industry as well. Can
0: you just explain for the people that will maybe see this, that don't have an understanding of what a PC manager does, what the role is actually about?
1: So it's so if, if we take CDM um, and we go back prior to 2015 there was a um, role called the CDM coordinator mm-hmm. it, after after CDM um, I went through a bit of a rethink and a, ref, a refurbish um, in 2015 we got rid of that type of role and we had the role of the principal designer and principal contractor uh, mm-hmm. within the railway might not be throughout construction but definitely within the real environment One of the main or your tier one contractors are all principal contractors who work on the railway. When you have multiple contractors working within one project, you will always have a lead principal contractor. Um, And on the days of the West Outer, um, there was a I was West Outer for Crossrail when I took the role on as principal contractor manager. And we had a a guy in Carellian who was on the inner working as a principal contractor manager. Um, And at that time, it was thought of best practice. Corillian were were in this role, and the role of the principal contractor manager basically is assurance for the CDN as a principal contractor. And it, you know, there's fundamentals to being a principal contractor: um, access arrangements and, and having access to the railway infrastructure, which you can split down into making sure that people get access, making sure that they are safe, got welfare, welfare provisions, and you know, various other stuff, security make sure that nobody can get into the infrastructure. There's also, um, when, when I talk about access, is integration of work. So if you think about it, it, it happens all the time, I had I had 12 miles of railway, and every time you would have a meeting with five or six major contractors, it's guaranteed 100%, everyone wanted to work in the same area. Yeah, apart from the odd couple. So You had to then integrate the works with each other. So that was having integration meetings, then basically go through a system where everybody knew what everybody else was doing Mm -hmm. and so so that was a major part of it and that's not technically health and safety is it that's real possessions that's looking at integration and the key to that and and one of my things i was very strong on was then the health and safety element of it was the assurance so i employed pc site managers as we called them and to go out guys who were Actually, site managers who had done electrification or track renewals or any discipline that we were doing on the project,
2: mm-hmm. I would
1: get these guys to do your assurance. So they would be your guys who would go to the contractors doing the work and say, can I please have a look at your task brief and um, just make sure that you're doing the work as you're saying you're doing. They would stop for yep, yep. any safety issues. They would raise close calls. They would encourage people to look at these close calls. Um, but there was a lot of training that I had to go because my, when I first took that job on, I told these guys to go out there and do what I wanted them to do, but we found that that safety conversation wasn't really happening, mm-hmm. um, so when I would go out and say, I would have a safety conversation, and actually people would always say to me, I, I love when you have a, a chat with me, because I walk away feeling, feeling like empowered, I can do stuff, but also I walk away knowing what I've done wrong, whereas your guys, as you call them at the time, just tell me and bother me, to an extent, and So I had to do a bit of training with that, Um, but also PC manager-wise, not just health and safety, because part of being a principal contractor is communication. That's key, you know, and your health and safety. Um, So making sure that every contractor, every person that walks through that front gate, is well aware of site rules. Induction was is also massive then. You've got to produce a good induction pack to then induct everybody. You've got to monitor that. You've got to monitor qualifications. But on this job, it was slightly different because we call it a hub-and-spoke. So I had Balfour Beatty, Vinci, um, telling there was many, many tier one contractors working under this project. Um, so I, I became a principal contractor manager in this hub-and-spoke model. So you were more aligned to Network Rail than you were for Balfour Beatty yourself. So we had to treat Balfour Beatty, my own company, as a contractor. and We mm-hmm. called them nominated contractors. Um, so that was a bit strange because there's me and, I, and if it, I've, you know, I've done the job now twice in major projects and the, the thing I always say is you're most hated guy in your company. Um, and it is, unfortunately, and I say that in a jovial way. It's not because they see the benefit from it, but sometimes your own company see you as, and I have to do it, I'm, unfortunately, I have had to stop work sometimes because it's been totally unsafe. To then have a have a you know a, a good workshop, a good discussion with them, how we're going to improve going forward, a bit like an improvement notice as such. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not nice, it's not nice doing that to your own company. But we're going to why I think I'm quite successful in that role because of integrity to an extent, and you do the right thing. And the way I've always seen it is, it doesn't matter if you're Caribbean, Beatty, on that job, I treat you all as equals. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's why the client liked it, and I was successful doing it and still I'm successful doing it is that's that's how I take the role um so yeah the, the role itself isn't just about health and safety it's about logistics it's about but I use I, I do employ a nucleus of guys working for me and um, but at mm-hmm. the same time I've got to know like anything else you're, you're accountable I'm the principal contractor rep for the project I, you know I go through a, a series of audits to make sure I'm competent to do that role and um, and one of the things I'm really, really proud of is when I started to do the role, um, Carillion were doing it for nine months prior, and the, the role was quite new, having have spoken. Mm-hmm. So there was this role of principal contractor manager. Um, and I started to bring in a lot of good stuff, let's be honest. Yeah, um, one of the first things i done, so Carillion would have four or five different signing in points.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, and
1: guys, guys had to drive six miles to go and sign in, to then drive six miles to another right. station to and I thought,
0: and the same again at the end of the shift to sign out.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I thought to myself. So I remember when I was setting it all up, I did speak with Crowe a lot, and I was thinking to myself. So when I was putting this, you know, and the guy who I took over from, um, because basically wanted me to do the job because Balfours were close to, I would say, not failing, but we were close to not getting the role, if you know what I mean. and um, he had adopted that same pro, that same thing, five sign-in points across twelve miles. I had a guy in West Drayton, for example, having to drive to Maidenhead and to sign in, to then drive back to you and I, and I remember sitting there going, fatigue, alone, not just about fatigue, this is just, you know, and in a way I did think about it as if, uh, efficiencies and savings. So carbon reduction and, and little things like that. I was thinking, do you know what? We could get a good new story out of this. And I came up with a thing called a control center. Mm-hmm. And there was one office, with staff working on it like a, a call center um, and people would sign in over the phone. Cause again, and I'll come on to it in a bit. Why should I babysit supervisors? Um, because the supervisors should be checking PP. The supervisors should be doing the, the brief. The supervisors should be signing these guys doing sentinel checks and various other stuff. Although as a principal contractor, I still do, mm-hmm. but I, I like putting that accountability on the people that should be doing it, if you know what yeah. I mean. Um, so, that was one of the questions raised: Is how can you check PPE? How can you do this? How can you do that? And I thought, well, it's easy. I mean, that's the supervisor; that's his role, you know. And and when, so when you speak to the individuals and, that, and when you speak to the companies, and um, they loved it. They loved signing in from the station because they knew that they didn't have to drive six miles, you know, as a workforce. And some of them, bizarrely enough, were driving in their own individual vehicles. So you had, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes twelve cars driving up and then driving back. It, it was just. It was madness. Um, so I developed a control centre. And then that did that grew arms and legs because we ended up having an incident response centre you know, so when you know yourself in the rail industry, um, site access SCO and um, for network rail, you have to have a strong link with these guys. Um, yeah. so when you report incidents, you've got to get on the phone. And we found a really good, brilliant way of interacting with SEO. Um, with incident reporting and various other stuff and I found a quick way of issuing what we call flash alerts so within five minutes you would get a phone call you know we've had an incident probably about 20 minutes after that and um, a lot of people knew that we'd had an incident and the reason I'd done that and I thought was because we're covering 12 miles we could have various the same work activities happening mileage yeah and if somebody has an incident working on a ladder for example although we ban ladders um somebody's got, say, working on an incident and they've had an incident with a ladder, somebody else could be working on a ladder on that same shift somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And we started to see that happen straight away as well as people knew about it straight away and actually people would take the ladder down and go and get um, you know, someone else to go and work with. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of good practice on that. Um, The close calls that we were putting in, positive interventions, as we call them, whatever whatever you want to call them, we, we went from, on average, 100 a month to 400, 500 a month with mm-hmm. the PC, with the site managers. Again, you could argue that we were taking away that from the contractors working on the job, but at the same time, I put it back to the contractors as a challenge. I said, well, if I'm going to, it's a bit like Alex Ferguson, you know, if, if you're going to score two goals, we will score four goals type analogy. Mm-hmm. That's what I used to say to them. I'm going to raise close calls because I need to, because it, it helps us, you know, with Planet, it helps us get that trend. It helps us to be that reactive part of the health and safety as a principal contractor. If I'm going to raise 20, what are you going to do about it? And they would, you know, it, it didn't it wasn't a numbers game, but that's not what I'm saying. It didn't turn into a numbers game. It turned into uh, taking ownership. Mm-hmm. And what I started to do is I started to see close calls that my guys were putting in get to zero and our job done. That's what I wanted. I wanted the workforce to raise the close calls, not me, not the principal contractor team. So I seen that as a good win. And um, and and a good thing about that is, especially close calls, as you know, the more we report the trends that we get, we start to we start to implement a lot of good practice. Um, and another thing I'll put in is working at height was a massive issue. I had working at height, not with the work activities itself, but with deliveries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say I would I averaged about 40 to 50 working at height incidents on that project in my first three months. And that was with either delivery drivers jumping up on the back of flatbeds, yep. um, RIV operate, you know, deliveries jumping on the back and jumping up there. Um, and especially when you're on tracking, off tracking machines, there was a lot of issues with trailers, people jumping on there as well. Um, so what I've done and again, a bit, maybe a bit of innovation, just a thought process. I needed security anyway on, on access points and various other stuff. So I, I spoke to um, a supplier and I said, with this CCTV, could I um, log into it myself and just have a, a look you know, yeah. on the CCTV, especially at the access points? And, he, and we set up a system where you can you can log in. And again, I go to the control center. We employed uh, you know, a site manager to observe CCTV on his shift. And the reason I said that is I I, I can't have, you know, we had sometimes 20, 30 work groups out at the same time. And you can't have one guy driving up and down checking everybody. Um, so I had two guys, one guy in the control center and and one guy on the phone, on the radio. If he seen someone, he could quickly a bit like rapid, rapid reaction, off you go because you need to go and intervene. Because I'm but at the same time, because we had a booking in system, we could phone the guy. Is he's just about to climb on top of that trailer, phone the guy and say, "Excuse me, mate, can you don't do it? We're watching you. Can you step, Don't jump on that trailer. You've not got. You need to put your follow system up. You could see him. You'd give a thumbs up. Put your follow system out, whether it's whatever he it had on, and go and going to do it. And, and part of you doing it that way, we went from as I said, forty to fifty working at height. You know, bearing, bearing in mind these are incidents, so you've got to do investigations. You've got to look at lessons learned and various other stuff, we went from 40 to 50 to one a month, we were lucky. And um, To me, that's that's brilliant. That's that reaction that I keep saying to you at Lesson Learned and how you can try and use a bit of technology at the same time to manage, because you can be everywhere. Um, and we talk about challenges, you know, from a health and safety perspective, um, people, you know, I wouldn't say it's a challenge. I think, you know, if we look at the vast amount of incidents, Two things I would look at is the behaviours of people and the planning. again, I'll come on to that, no doubt, when you ask me um, about your challenges. That's that's one of the things I've sort of gave it away. Um, but yeah, so the PC, I think I'm hoping I've explained the sort of role of principal contractor. Um, all it is to do with assurance, and there is a lot of assurance that goes on there. There is also the responsibility of being a principal contractor on the railway. Um, my, as I've said to quite near the start. One of the things that I've not really grasped yet is the role of a principal designer and mm-hmm. where they sit with PC. You do look at CDM regs and CDM regs tells you that you should be having regular meetings with principal designers and mm-hmm. you should be you know hold, not holding them to account but you should be you know and vice versa and, and the client. I do feel that client-wise we brilliant you know the relationships we have with Network Rail with London Underground uh, in a PC role is fantastic Relationship between PC and PD, I think there's still work to do on that. I think I think there is a bit of work to do on that, and I'm trying my best in this role now to, um, to try and get that relationship a bit stronger. Um, on the King's Cross through modern job that I'm on now, um, the role of PD is done by the client, by Network Rail, um, and I've seen a lot of progress, a lot of good progress. Um, and and compare the principal contractor role that I'm on now to the West Outer role. I've never really done anything called hazard transfer. So CDM hazard transfer mm-hmm. and stuff from the PD to the PC. I'm doing that now. Um, and, and that's been an eye-opener, you know, taking new structures that you're putting up and transferring that as a hazard onto PC risk instead of a PD risk. And um, so we have come a long way. So I'm not saying there's um you know there isn't a it's not that the role is developing. I still think there's a lot to do, with it, especially safety and design. Um, mm-hmm. And especially pre, grip they call it Grip three, Grip five, on certain in certain jobs. I think if a PC gets more involved in the in more of the or the safety, or and I would say that in any any job, not necessarily on a PC role, safety wise, I want to see more safety people in these IDCs and in, in design meetings mm-hmm. um, with the, the designers. To we might not have much input into it all especially when you get a group of engineers together it's fantastic listening to something, but something you don't get a word in edgeways but there's always that and I've, I've done it a few times I've, I've been in engineering idc's and various sort of stuff and i've asked something and i'll give that back to one of my jobs that i've done with talent so if i come away from the pc thing anyway to one of the jobs that i've done because i left alphabet in that role and um, because I wanted to gain a bit of experience, as I keep saying to you, Blair, I think myself, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, I spend a couple of years on a job and I want to progress or I want to go and do something different because I don't want to stagnate at the same time. Maybe it's a bad thing. I don't know. I've still not, you know, nobody's told me it's good or bad in every job that I do, you know, I seem to do okay, but that's that's open to question, shall we say, is it a good or is it a bad thing? But one of the things that I was lacking on was experiencing the London Underground. Mm -hmm. Um, and I always thought to myself, I remember days in the army, I went and worked for seven months with the underground because there was a plan put in place. If we had any issues, any mass casualty evacuation in London, we could have used the underground as a military. And part of my role would have been to take the army guys and drive the underground trains up and down the stations. That um, never came to anything. But I remember thinking to myself, I've always been keen to be an all-rounded health and safety practitioner in the rail industry it's not just about working with network rail it's looking at overground it's looking at um docklands it's looking at the underground so i went and took a, a job with talent they were working <laughs> on the underground <laughs> they were installing media screens
2: yeah
1: and that goes bizarrely away from doing renewals and ole and mm-hmm. station development and piling and all this stuff that i'm you know really strong on to electrical install hmm And the reason I say that is, and it's, again, my, my offering to an extent, when I say about being a subject matter expert to an extent, stick to what you know, to an extent, but at the same time, let's try something different. Let's do something different because you need to expand, you know, expand your knowledge, you know, look at something that you're weak on. And I would say from an electrical installation point of view, that was one of my key weaknesses, shall I say, on that you no, know, I'm an expert. I'm not saying I'm an expert nowadays, but you know, I know a lot now because I challenged myself and I went, you know what, I'm going to go and do this job. And um, I've got a vast amount of experience in the rail underground. I had a slight bit of experience and fair play talent. to give me the opportunity, they seen the potential. Um, and within two three weeks, I was I was up and running anyway. And um, but again, sitting with strong individuals who asked questions, I asked them, maybe they thought I was. experienced enough and maybe they thought you know this guy doesn't know what he's doing but i've seen it as learn just learn a bit you know learn about the jobs then and study as well and and look at you know policies procedures so on and so forth and quickly I, i found my feet quite easily um and that job was fantastic uh working with the underground tfl it brought more knowledge with regards to environmental aspects and and how we deal with uh, TFL and certain TFL working practices. And, and I worked a lot on Crossrail as well. So we've done um, every single Crossrail station, we put in media screens in all the stations. And it's funny, I, I had to do seven inductions in in two days with every station. And I remember always thinking to myself, with inductions, you had to do DNA testing. So that means providing a urine sample. Um, and I remember we used to do, as part of the army, we used to do CDT, I think it was called, and you never wanted to be that guy that stood in the corner not being able to pee. Um, I remember after my fourth induction in one day, I was that guy, unfortunately, who who stood in the corner having to drink loads of water because I couldn't pee. Um, and strange but we had to do, and, and that's what, then again, I spoke to Crossrail on that, I was thinking, well, that, and it puts you on a bit of, later on in life, if you have multiple stations and why don't we just do a core induction and, you know, and then separate station inductions, once you join or something like that? It, you know, we could have saved a lot of valuable time and effort. And um, saying that, all inductions were very good. And um, which put me on the King's Cross job when we put induction together, I learned a lot from that. And I put a very good induction package together. Um, but the talent job and installation of, of media screens, I go back to what I said about the PD element. And um, we were installing large TV screens really in the underground, 60 inch, 75 inch, and there was one 120 inch, I think we had to install, I don't know the numbers, but these were big screens. And um, I think they were 198 kilograms.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I remember getting them from Italy, um, getting them in, getting them into the depot, and, and I, I actually sat down and said, right, let's do a bit of a, because I couldn't get my head around it. I was doing manual handling risk assessments thinking, how am I going to get this screen down an escalator all the way along to possibly walking 700, 800 um, meters along to a concourse to then install it, to lift it up and install it. Then I found out, and as people will know, when you're traveling down escalators, there's a weight limit. Mm -hmm. And the weight limit wasn't 190 kilograms. So with four people, six people, when we were trying to do the trials, to lift 198 kilograms with four people, you need to be big units, um, and it wasn't working. So, we tried uh, various ways of doing it straps either side, five people one side, five people the other side. And we've done a trial with TFL and um, using an escalator. And, and this is it again, this is what I say sometimes you've got to fail sometimes to, to then be able to work out a solution. I remember with TFL five guys on one side five guys another with this big massive 198 kilogram 120 inch screen and they were squeezed on like lemons either side of the escalator i don't know why but we came up with let's press let's start the escalator so we don't have to walk down we can just get them flowing all the way down this nice escalator and then we can stop it at the end brilliant and in, brilliant in principle brilliant in theory we've got to look at sir isaac newton and his theory of relativity or gravity or whatever it is, when you stop someone, it still pushes that individual forward. But when we chose to do the trial and these guys were coming down nice and slow, nice and controlled, it got to a point where we stopped the escalator. There was a jolt, which we didn't factor in. And I seen 10 guys in a pile at the bottom of an escalator um, with a screen that, I, would, I don't know how much these screens cost, but that was firmly dropped on the floor, shall we say. Um, but to be fair, I said, yes, then you've got to go through the pain because it was an incident at the end of the day. We had to, you know, and I'll take ownership of that. And I was like, you know, we, we put together an idea, we had to do a trial, it didn't work. Uh, my take on that was I, I listened to certain people to an extent too because, you know, they were pretty the input into it. It never, it never felt right. So sometimes you've got to go with your instinct at times. And we ended up, cut a long story short, We ended up saying, let's go back and design, let's go back and look at the design of it all. And and I was involved in taking components out. So, some of these batteries that we put, some of the governors that we put inside these screens, we managed to redesign. And it went from 198 kilograms to still quite heavy, but about 165. Um, And one of the things that I looked at as well was um, a stair climber. So, the normal stair climbers that you got, um, you can use mechanical stair climbers. Again, the, the biggest caveat to that was the escalated weight capacity. And um, mm-hmm. again, we've done trials um, usually, and usually I found with product accept- acceptance within the railway and within TFL and within the underground. I've seen sometimes two years at waits before you get anything accepted. Fair play to one of the senior construction managers within TFL. We pushed this and we got product acceptance in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we still use it, and I, I think we still use it nowadays of our can't remember it it's a stair climber basically, it's, it's only for escalators um, and we managed to, suspend the load as such so you don't get any any sort of um, spread of load on the escalator steps itself and it's, it's operated by a remote control, so there was no manual handling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we managed to negate all the manual handling, we managed to negate um, the, you know, the issues of getting the screen and then we developed a table that came with the which actually mechanically lifted it up and on to the, fi- the fixing it was on. Um, and part of the design process as well was, instead of having it as one unit, we could design it so we could fit the base, a bit like putting a TV bracket on the wall, and then putting the screen on top. So there's a lot of, so it ended up coming in two parts as well. Um, so to me, it's quite a success story of um, you know, having a bit of innovation, but also working with a principal designer, working with design as a safety person to alleviate and the manual handling risk. So we actually went from an incident to an extent to no manual handling at all um, for these units. So you know, really good bit of work. At, uh, you know, quite personal pride in that. And um, again, I go back to I've done my I've done my work. I've done the project, um, and and I went to Morgan Sindel, who I'm I'm currently with now. Um, and as I said, what what a great move. What a fantastic move. Fantastic company. Um, really. I think their their take on health and safety is is up another level to what I've had experience on uh, in the past. Again, that's no disrespect to anybody I've worked with. It's the whole part of the whole construction, the whole industry anyway is ever evolving. So I think everybody else is evolving anyway. So um, but at the same time, as I said to they, they have um, very good, especially in well-being, um, fantastic. You know, and I, I'm... I'll take a lot away from it. Um, but it's also one of the things that they, they have, and it's, again, something that I'll always take away with me. With, with health and safety, you've got to have a strategy to an extent, and, and we've got a, a thing that our head of safety produced, um, which, but again, it's not, and it, it's, a good, it's, a, it's a good bit of recommendation as well, if you're in a position where you have to, you know, implement strategy and stuff, don't do it in isolation and mm-hmm. the good thing that he did, he involved everybody in it, not just from a health and safety point of view, he went to the project leads, he went to certain people and said, right, I'm I'm, I'm going to have to, I need a strategy for the year ahead, we need to measure ourselves, we need to, yep. you know, and he produced a thing called an Achieve Excellence Plan,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: which is 12, I would say 12 pillars, 12 things that we need to do, I um, won't go into great detail on it, but my point I'm making is, to, to his, to, and I would say with anybody, and I think all the major Tier 1 contractors do it, you've got to have a plan, and you've got to stick to that plan. Um, engaging the stakeholders is key in that as well. Brilliant, yeah, and and, and the, the stakeholder, especially on this project on Kings Cross, Network Rail have been fantastic. Um, the support that they've shown you know, with any health and safety initiative that we've done, um, the Achieving Excellence plan, we, we, we also do a lot of, you know, you have um, our analogy of 100% safe, and we're going to, we'll come on to that in a sec as well, various other zero harm and all, all the good, it's like visionary type strategies in it to an extent, we, we want zero harm, we want to be 100% safe. Um, but yeah, I've always said to underpin that, you've got to have a strategy, you've got to have a plan, but don't have it over, I'm going to have a five year plan. You know, when the good thing at Morganson will do, we'll review it every year. So achieving excellence, you set out equality, health and safety, various other stuff, but then after a year, measure it and turn around and say, right, what have we achieved? What haven't we achieved? What worked? What didn't work? Okay, do we want to then produce or do we want to continue with this or do we want to try something else or if it didn't work, do we reinvent it? And from Achieve an Excellence Plan, it gives you a quarterly, um, a bit of a steer on what you do per quarter then um, mm-hmm. with regards to working at height or well-being and we always split it down into environmental well-being and health and safety each quarter and then you can then do workshops, briefings, any way you want to communicate that to the workforce it gives you a good standing then, it gives you a good you know um, platform shall I say to, to then you know manage to an extent health and safety on your projects but also it aligns you to the business because again each project is different so you've got to align your own strategy to that strategy to an extent, but also you can do your own certain things. And that's where, again, stakeholder client engagement becomes massive because some of the things that the client might want doesn't align to your own strategy. And so that's where we come in where we've got to, you've got to juggle it to an extent and you've got to look at both. You've got to look at your own business unit and you've got to look at your client and the project and come up with a, sometimes a middleman, or sometimes a middle ground to compromise or to assure everybody um, so that's one of the things I take away from it, is got to have a good strategy. Um, and we also, as I, I've mentioned to you already, about wellbeing, we, we train, we do self-training, so mountain health first, first aiders. If you think of the construction industry a couple of years ago, could you get a 25-year-old supervisor wanting to come in and talk about his feelings um, and, and tell you that he's feeling stressed? That's, but we've gave, we've gave people the tools now to, actually you know with mental health first aiders I think it's a brilliant initiative and
0: I I know it's not just one of the biggest changes in the industry as well that it's so prevalent now to be able to speak up and be recognized whereas in years gone by it would have been cast to one side or the person would have been cast to one side had they spoke up but now it's excellent that we're in that position that we're able to support that and develop that through so i think mental health first aiders absolutely agree
1: it's, it's fantastic yeah it is a fantastic initiative it's something that i know the whole industry is taking on board and um, mm-hmm. and as i said i think we still still work to be done you know we've still got some some guys out there girls out there who who don't want to speak up and um, you've got to give them the tools and, and it's not just about companies it's also you know there are mechanisms for, you know, people to phone. There's, you know, there's things in the rail industry that we can, you know, you don't need to speak to company reps. You know, there is plenty out there for people and um, to get in touch with people. And um, I've personally, offered I would say, issues myself um, with regards to, I, I, would, I, I don't know if I'm PTSD. I, I, I would never say for me it was PTSD, but I know a lot of people that have suffered with PTSD and I've tried mm-hmm. to help out as much as I can. Um, I, I do try my best to do a bit of fundraising. I, I've done stuff in the past with um, a, a guy called Andy Reid, um, who's a mm-hmm. triple amputee. Um, he's got a foundation called Standing Tall. Uh, and mm-hmm. he does a lot of work with uh, Morsons and the railway. And, and mm-hmm. he talks quite openly about it. Um, but I remember I was I was doing him more of a motivational speaker. And, mm-hmm. But... And you found that the more he spoke about his motivational speaker, he then started to suffer a bit more with PTSD because he started to remember it a lot. Mm -hmm. So you've got that thing. But, yeah, I think PTSD is is massive, um, and it still is. I think I didn't suffer from PTSD. I'm I'm quite willing to share that experience. Um, I suffered a lot from, and it happens to a lot of ex-servicemen, I was at, you call it institutionalised for 20 years. Mm -hmm. I was programmed. I was, you know, I was in this bubble, shall I say, um, where I got out of the army and nothing prepares you for getting out of the army into what we call city street. Um, And I lost my marriage from it. Um, Not proud to say that, but I did. Um, I also suffered with depression quite a lot in my first two years of working for Balfour Beatty. Did I tell anybody about it? No. And as I say to you, I, I took on three or four more roles. Mm -hmm. I think looking back, the reason I took on all these roles and this responsibility wasn't to get that, you know, recognition, it wasn't because it was ingrained into me in the army that I'd take on roles, it was to hide the fact that I was suffering, Mm -hmm. I just wanted, and I was working 19 hour days mate, I was was always on the phone, I was always working, I didn't speak to family, I didn't speak to friends, they got really concerned about me, and my excuse was I'm working, I'm busy. Mm-hmm. And the penny dropped when, as I said, you know, I, I, I'm going through a divorce. I'm, I'm depressed. Um, and actually, uh, looking back, if I had someone to talk to, um, I'm still one of these. I, 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 when somebody said you need to do counselling, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm a you know, and I mean, I like scoty. I'm not doing that. One of the best things I've done was talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you get a release, it's like that chip off your show up, you know, it it is something I would recommend to anybody. You don't have to talk about a counsellor, you don't. And I didn't rely on a chaise lawnmate and going through that, it was, you know, sitting sitting, having a good chat, and within two she, you know, she had already sussed me out, she'd already, she doesn't tell you what's wrong. with you, you figure it out for yourself. But enable you to talk to someone, that is to me a mental health first aid or even, even just me. I like to grab people on that. I like to have a chat with them. I like everybody that works for me, I will always have a one to one with them every month. That, mm-hmm. And we do PDRs, We do, you know, development records and various other stuff. It's not about that. It's about just sitting with you, you guys and girls and, and saying to them, How are you? I mean, are you all right? And recognise, as I keep saying, know your employees because you can sort of recognise, I've done mental health first aid myself. Can see the signs you know you can people go quiet people work a lot and and the reason i'm I can see the signs I, I was in that boat you know what I mean and I did I suffered really badly for it and the point is, as I said probably probably had a breakdown but I am asked up and as we keep saying maybe the role now of talking mental health first aid or anybody at all if you look at it from a from us in you new know, you know, realm of safety it does quite sit with us to an extent. Well-being, you know, and, and I'll cover up quite near the end, is I wrote a list of what I do now as a, as a health and safety practitioner. Mm-hmm. It's not just health and safety, well-being, it's you're a counsellor, you're security, you're, you know, it, there's loads It we become, you know, not, not necessarily by choice, but because of the role itself, it, it develops, and, and that's what we have to do. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it's tough to go through, but as I said, the stuff that Morgan's done, the stuff that Balfour Beatty do, stuff, I've seen lots because the good thing about being in a PC role, when you've got multiple contractors, you see what everybody else is doing. And um, mm-hmm. So, again, Siemens, who, who work for us on the job, it, some of the stuff they're doing for um, development and soft skills approach is met, head and shoulders above anybody because um, they're looking at the softer skills of stuff. So what makes people tick? It's not just about the, the core skills. It's about, you know, how do I ask people? Things that Siemens are doing at the minute are, are possibly industry-changing from a supervisor level. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it's stuff that we should share. That's that's a good thing. It, we don't share enough. We don't we don't yeah. have this big forum that we can all put good ideas on it and say this is what we do better. And I like Alphabet had a thing called um, Share with Pride. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would like to have a, a, a steal with Pride. I mean, I would like to take everything. <laughs> but um, I don't mean I mean that in a bad way. Yeah, I don't no. mean that in a bad way. I, I would like. And I think the Track Safety Alliance that is done uh, through Network Rail, I think that's a very good way of doing that and yeah. I'm, a of, I'm a member of the Track Safety Alliance and, and the guys who run that and the guys who are involved in that and girls who are involved in that, you get all the good practice from that and I think we need to embrace that a lot more, not just within the railway, in construction, in, in the industry in general, if we share good practice, you know, iOcean. Ocean. It's a fantastic way of doing it, mate, and, and you shouldn't be scared of people taking your ideas. You should take pride in the fact that somebody took your, you know, manual handling escalated idea and, and used it in another project and claimed it was their idea. Brilliant. Go for it. You know, I, I would do that, and I'll do it 100%. I will share with anybody, and I'll take you to the, the COVID stuff that we've done. I don't know if you've stopped me on my profile, mate, on LinkedIn, um, enough to, to look at um, the COVID Stuff that we've done back in April or March, April time last year, um, I was more than happy to share uh, – we brought in thermal camera imagery. Yeah. Um,
0: yep.
1: And, I'll, and I'll I think
0: about... that was prevalent in the industry, wasn't it, that we shared – when COVID hit, everybody started to share their ideas and really work together to put the information out there, rather yep. than working as a load of separate entities. We're going to have to move on a little bit, Dave. And I'm going to thank you for coming on the podcast at this point. And thank you very much on behalf of the viewers and listeners to Safer Than Your Average for coming on the show.
1: Yeah. No problem, mate. It's been, well, I'm hoping it, you know, people have taken a bit from it, mate. And um, it's been glad, mate. It's been a good experience. Very good, mate. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos
2: for rail, construction, and infrastructure projects nationwide.